Hey, this is Adam Green, the director of the Hatchet franchise, Frozen, Digging Up the Marrow, and the TV series Holliston. You are listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies we have a bi-weekly show that's released every other friday and this is episode 139 on horror movie podcast you'll hear in-depth movie reviews for classics and all the new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy rent or avoid these movies i'm your mc for the evening wolfman josh and my lone co-host tonight is Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Josh, screaming at me is like yelling at your watch because you're late. <laughs> I do that though. <laughs> so Jay of the Dead is not going to be with us tonight, unfortunately. Uh, this will be one of our Frankensteinian episodes where we'll just be covering any horror films that we happen to have seen lately. I think our feature reviews tonight are going to be Mom and Dad which Dave will be talking about and devil's gate, which I'll be talking about. The other big thing we have going on this episode is I'll be reviewing Victor Crowley. And we have an interview with Adam green, where we'll be talking to him about the film and some of the other things going on. But first something I'm really excited about, we'll be talking about the horror films that were at the 2018 Sundance film festival. And at this point in the show, we are joined by a composer and dear friend. You'll recognize his music from the horror movie podcast theme from the beginning of the show, as well as much of the music we use on the show. He's also the composer and podcast producer over at Universal Monsters Cast with me and Dave. And he's the current title holder of our listener of the year. Welcome back to horror movie podcast, Kagan Breitenbach. Thank you so very much for having me back again on my very favorite podcast. Your The Shining in the Misery episode was one of my favorite things you guys have ever done. I loved it. Oh, yeah. thanks, dude. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. It's our absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. And especially talking about Sundance, you've become now our Sundance correspondent, it seems like. I wasn't quite like the all-star that I was last year, because last year, well, the past couple years, actually, I've gotten a pass. So that means I had all access to as many movies as I wanted to go see in the nine days of the festival runs, nine-ish days. And uh, I'll usually see anywhere from 25 to 30 in that period. But this year, it was just too busy. Uh, but I made sure to get in a couple horror films. So um, the two that I saw were Summer of 84, which, Josh, I know you saw as well. That's right. And then also Hereditary. I caught that one as well. And I, and I also caught Search was the other kind of horror-adjacent film that I saw at the festival. Okay. There were there were more I wanted to see. And we'll, let's talk about them briefly just so people uh, know what was, what was up there. Sure. The first one that really caught my attention was Lords of Chaos. Mm-hmm. And we discussed that briefly in our heavy metal horror episode. But this is, you know, an artistic 
recreation of the real life events surrounding mayhem and and the murder of one of their band members in the Norwegian black metal scene back in the day. And stars Rory Culkin is in the film and uh, Emery Cohen from the OA and Sky Ferreria, Jack Kilmer, Walter Skarsgård. So uh, great cast. And, you know, the director himself is Swedish and was involved in the Swedish uh, black metal scene. So there's some, I guess, uh, credibility there. Although I hear that some of the musicians involved were not excited about this film or the book that it was based on. And um, in some cases, I think weren't, they didn't give permission to use their music in the movie. So they had to go back and re-record samples of the fi- with different artists recording those uh, musical moments. But from what I hear, this is more horror than music biography. So I'm really excited to see how they pull that off. Well, after Devil's Candy, I'm just I'm I'm stoked about more heavy metal horror. Yeah, absolutely. And this one based on a true story, so that's cool. Um, nice. You know, Dave is going to be talking about Mom and Dad later tonight. One of the big buzz films from the festival was Nicolas Cage in Mandy. Yeah, that's right. I've heard that that was just a crazy experience, and and that one you guys would recognize the, uh, the director of, of Mandy. It's, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Panos Cosmatos. And I believe oh, time crimes. Is that the guy? Oh no, that's uh, Nacho. That's Nacho. That's Nacho. This is the guy who did uh, beyond the black rainbow. If you guys saw that, no, it know. is weird, I- but I highly recommend it. If you want to see some trippy horror sci-fi, um, Beyond the Black Rainbow is a, a great one to check. I have out. a colleague that's obsessed with that movie, so I need to get around to it. Oh yeah, worth seeing okay. for sure. An- another one that got a little bit of buzz was Piercing, and that is from the guy who directed The Eyes of My Mother a couple of years oh, ago, which was popular and on a lot of people's top mm-hmm. ten lists. This one is I've heard it described as like an S and M torture film. So Jay's kind of the reviews I saw were really uh, disparaging of it, (laughs) but I've heard that it got some, uh, a lot of good reviews as well. And I'm interested in Mia Wasikowski is in it and I like her a lot. And uh, Christopher Abbott was, is the other co-star. So I don't know one I'm, I'm looking forward to. Yeah. I I had a couple friends go see that, that didn't particularly care for it. They said it had some really great moments, but um, it sounds like it's not the movie for anybody who thinks that uh, an obvious plot is necessary. Apparently, there's not much of a plot going on. Okay. There, so that's all I know. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think his first film was beloved enough by horror fans that a lot of people will at least be checking it out. Sure. But yeah, I have I haven't heard a lot of great things about it okay. either, to be honest. Um, one that I think Jay is going to love, and I, I haven't seen it, but one that I've heard a lot about is Revenge. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that looks interesting, and it looks really up Jay's alley, if you ask me. It has a bit of a Last House on the Left, a little bit of a I Spit on Your Grave kind of um, vibe on paper, I guess, if you just look at the description. But it's about this young girl who uh, goes up 
as I understand it, to see the man she's having an affair with out in the wilderness. And he has brought some friends and they're drunk and they decide they want to have her way with her. And, and they're, and they're on a hunting trip and uh, things go awry. And I think it's a female revenge film from what I gather, but I don't, I don't know for sure. So don't consider that a spoiler, but uh, the stills look cool. <laughs> This one kind of got edged out for me because I considered this because it, it was in the midnight section of the festival. Yeah. Uh, but it is billed as an action thriller. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's why I didn't end up going to see this one. I'm I'm guessing Jay's going to call it survival horror. I mean, it looks pretty horrific from the, the few write-ups I've seen mm-hmm. about it. One that I think is more of a thriller, which I'm kind of sad about, is Arizona that Danny McBride is in with Rosemary DeWitt and Luke Wilson. Um, I've heard it's just kind of a more of a revenge thriller type of film, but, but I've heard that Danny McBride plays it completely straight and psychotic. And this is like the first film where he really just plays a straight up villain. He's, he's quite villainous in a lot of his comedic roles, you know, borderline with like vice principals, but they always have this comedic and humanistic undertone. And I, I hear that that's all gone for Arizona. So I'm, I'm curious about that one, even though, I don't think that one's going to be horror. Yeah, interestingly enough, that's billed on IMDb as a comedy and nothing else. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah, maybe comedic yeah. thriller is what I had heard. Um, it's it's only it's only been a week, but my brain is already going. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one I wanted to mention before we jump into our deeper coverage is Assassination Nation. Again, I've heard that that's more of an action film than than anything else it, it was also in the midnight section at sundance uh but yeah that one directed by sam levinson i, I don't think that one's a horror film but i think it may be of interest to horror fans has bill skarsgård is in it bella thorne is in it and uh, it looks suki waterhouse who was in the bad batch so an interesting cast of people who have worked in horror before and it looks pretty extreme from what i can gather cool so let's jump into the films that you saw, Kagan. I'd say let's start off talking about Summer of 84. Uh, I was just, I was actually pretty excited that you went and saw this one because I thought about you a lot when I was watching it. I feel like it appeals to a lot of what you like, just in terms of, I could sum up Summer of 84 as a combination of it and the burbs. And because of that, did, did you, yeah. do you kind of see what I mean with that? Oh, absolutely. It, it had, it was a lot of fan service. We should say this is from the makers of Turbo Kid. Although it doesn't have at all the tone of Turbo Kid, it does have that same level of kind of like 80s nostalgic reference fan service going on. But it is a story about a bunch of kids on BMX bikes solving a mystery. So it does have that it, um, Stranger Things, E.T., kind of vibe which i'm which i as you've rightly pointed out, i'm normally a huge sucker for it mm-hmm. also had kind of this rear window aspect to it or as yes. you pointed out the burbs and there are definitely mm-hmm. some specific shots that are straight out of the burbs but mm-hmm. there were other moments that very much felt like rear window to me and i thought that was interesting or what was that um what was that remake uh, that they did kind of of rear window the unofficial Disturbia? remake Disturbia. It had a lot actually in common with Disturbia. You have the kid who's who's grounded in this film, and that film he was on house arrest. But right, no, there's a there's a specific shot in this where it's kind of like, um, 
if you were to put Raymond Burr in there, you, right. it's vertigo, you know, yeah. like that moment where Rear the, vo- the voyeur realizes he's also being watched, you know, you know, a moment I'm Correct. talking about where they kind of like lock eyes. You're just like, oh, we've, I've seen that before. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, this is from the directors of Turbo Kid. Um, and this is, uh, these, these are actually three directors. And if you don't mind, I'm not going to try and pronounce their names because I'll just ruin it. Uh, <laughs> they are not American names. <laughs> so, and They're it looks French like Canadian, a, in fact, the French Canadian. Okay. Uh, I'm, I really like these guys. I, I enjoyed Turbo Kid a lot. And I think that they're kind of, you know, borderline. Well, I, I, I don't know. They, they just have this reverence to a 80 cinema and that comes across in their work a lot. And I think that's, I think that's fun. Um, but should I have a synopsis here? If, uh, I'll go ahead and read that. Yeah, Absolutely. It says, after suspecting that their police officer neighbor is a serial killer, a group of teenager friends spend their summer spying on him and gathering evidence. But as they get closer to discovering the truth, things get dangerous. Um, I will say one way in which this is not like the Burbs or uh, It is that Mm -hmm. this, and this isn't a spoiler, this is all, this all kind of takes place in reality. There's no supernatural element to this film. And again, I don't think that's a spoiler to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is more akin to something like to, to rear window. But, uh, Josh, what did you think of the kids in this? Cause I think the success of a movie like this, de- uh, depends on how much you like the kids and how well they're played. You know, this, that was probably, I agree with you. That was the trickiest aspect for me. And I think it's so funny because we just came off a year in 2017 with so many films with amazing young people performances between it and better watch out where I was floored by the level of acting in some of those films last year. And so while these kids are good, they're just not at that same level and they're fine. That's the thing. It's like any other year I would have been like, these kids were great. But on the on the heels of 2017, it's kind of like, well, they kind of detracted a little bit for the film for me. <laughs> They're all likable, I thought. And I thought um, some of the kids were better than others. You know, I the, the only one that really didn't work for me was the boy who's in the babysitter, which I'm blanking on his name right now. I'm trying to look it up feverishly as, mm-hmm. as we're talking about it. Um, but... His name is Judah Lewis, and he played kind of the punk rocker of the group. Yeah. And he was kind of supposed to be the tough guy in the group and, you know, the Han Solo type, just nonchalant, doesn't really care about anything. He's the only one who I didn't really buy into. And it was unfortunate because he was fantastic in The Babysitter. I, I mean, he was one of the things I appreciated most about The Babysitter. So I was surprised um, that what he did here didn't work for me as well. Um, I thought the main kid was really good. I, I I thought he was the best of the young actors. Graham, I'm gonna, as you mentioned, I'm gonna butcher his name. Vercheré, Vercher, Vercher. Sounds good. <laughs> sorry, I don't. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name there, Graham. I thought he was excellent. Yeah, I, um, I thought there were moments where he could have been a little bit better, but but mostly I thought he was great. Yeah, I I agree with you. Um, and and I felt about the same about the kids. I thought they were all. They were all good. 
Uh, and I don't think, I don't know if there was anything, you, you know, I, I don't necessarily attribute it to their acting as much as just the way the characters were written in this. Because if you compare this to something like It um, and to characters like Ben Hanscom and Beverly Marsh, those kids have some really right. serious, not great stuff happening in their lives. And so it kind of, it, it provides this opportunity for a lot of emotional uh development through the story and i think that there's like a bit of a uh, domestic um you know just problems in these kids lives in summer of 84 but they're really they're fairly subdued in comparison to something like it do you agree well, yeah i absolutely agree with you yeah you know these are professional child actors we should say like they're all They've all done a lot of work. The the girl who's kind of the love interest, her name's Tierra Scoveby. Scoveby. Mm-hmm. She is uh, she's been on Supernatural. She's been on Riverdale. So she's done a lot of work. Um, Corey Gruter Andrew has been on Legends of Tomorrow, The One Hundred, and he was in Oakjaw last year, which I liked. Um, so he's also you know done quite a lot of work. Caleb Emery, who's the bigger kid. He was in Goosebumps, which I liked. And so they've all done um, – they're not first-timers. They're all experienced young actors. And Graham, uh, he had been in Fargo and The Good Doctor and, and some things like that. The Fargo, the television series, I should say. Right. So, um, I, yeah. I have to pipe in and say I liked Caleb Emery pretty well too. I thought um, yeah. I thought they did a really good job of making his character sympathetic and I thought he played it really well. I agree. But for me, it was a real uh, rich summer from Mad Men was the real standout uh, from the cast. And I thought, completely agree. I think when you have an actor that strong, it unfortunately, again, kind of highlights the inexperience of some of the younger actors who are your main characters. And all of a sudden you have rich summer come in and just like, Whoa, like he's good. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And, and just so, tell the audience, Rich Summer, what is the is the suspect, the guy next door right. that the kids are spying on? Yeah, and kind of the tagline of the film, and they say it quite early on in the film: every serial killer lives next door to someone. And so right. these kids are suspecting. Oh man, you know our, our friendly neighbor may in fact be a serial killer, and it's up to us to uncover whether or not this is true or not. I think for me, the f- scenes in the film that I liked the most are the things that really did call me back to childhood. Like the night games was a big one. I don't know if you guys spent much time playing night games when you're kids. Oh, yeah. But these guys play a game called uh, Manhunt, which my friends and I also played a game called Manhunt, but it wasn't exactly the same rules. This was more like flash flashlight tag kind of a yeah game that they were playing. But man, that just brought back summer nights as a kid. And and I haven't really seen that in movies before that I can think of. So that was one thing that really stood out to me from the film. Um, and there were other cool moments that were very unique, but I think it is difficult because, and they mentioned, I think in the Q and a, in my Q and a, they mentioned they had actually started working on this long before they'd heard of stranger things or it. And so I think it is unfortunate mm-hmm. that coming after those films, it feels more redundant. But I think people who are huge fans of those and just want more yeah. might want to consume this right away. That's so crazy. I didn't know they were working on it before. It's just so it's it's the zeitgeist like twenty the twenty tens are all about <laughs> kids on bikes nostalgia. It's yeah. a, it's officially a subgenre in my opinion. 
now. Yeah. I mean, with Stranger Things and It and this. Well, this is weird. This is going to sound weird, but I wrote a screenplay back in 2007. It was the first thing that I sold, and it was a Kids on Bikes movie. Really? <laughs> and very much like Stranger Things. Like It's less horror than Stranger Things and more fantasy, but it's almost the exact same type of world. Mm-hmm. And it was purchased in 2007. The company didn't make it wanted to turn around. We ended up getting the rights back in like 2008, 2009. And then just this year, because of stranger things, they wanted to make it again. So they just called us and they were like, you guys were doing this before stranger things. Let's let's, can we get that script back? Have you done anything with it? And so what'd you say? I mean, I, I, on one hand, you're like, I want it to get made because I spent all the time in it, but it is, I just can feel the onslaught of people saying this is so, you know, redundant <laughs> thanks to all these other movies. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with it at this point. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, when, when I was watching this thing, because this thing has a very, very uh, heavy 80s nostalgia style synth score, and I'm looking up, uh, it looks like they have three different composers on this, actually. Um, well, there were two guys. They're in a they're in a rock band together, or not rock band. I guess they're in like a digital music band together. Sure. The guys who wrote the music are Jean Philippe Bernier and Jean Nicolas Lupi, and they are in a band called Lamatos. Oh, okay, so that's together. what's going on. All right, and Lamatos, yeah, is the band, and they're cool. Like if you go, and they also did the music for Turbo Kid. If you go back and listen to right. that, but one of them, Jean Philippe Bernier, who's actually going to be on our. Um, Horror Cinema Awards jury this year. Right on. He's also the cinematographer of this film and of uh, Turbo Kid. Wow. Darn those multi-talented people. I'm just a musician myself. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, with uh, worrying about audience fatigue for this sort of subgenre, I, I always wonder, like, when are people going to get tired of this really – 80s influenced synth music it's it's so it's it's everywhere right now and i mean in this the score in this film is very good but i don't know josh maybe it's just what people want right now it's it's all over the place that's interesting especially coming from you because for me i'm definitely of the mind like i can't get enough as long as it's good I'm always down for more 80s synth music you know but i can definitely see from your perspective as a composer, how that could be getting really old. Um, and I, I kind of think of it from the filmmaking terms of I'm really sick of this shot of the bicycle wheel. <laughs> like right. I don't want to see that sure. anymore, but, um, well, well, don't get me wrong. I, I really still enjoy that music. Yeah. The only thing I, I worry that it's becoming homogenous at this point, yeah. like other styles are. It's like, appropriate it's just... to the film though, to some degree. And so it's hard to argue in the context of either turbo kit or this film that it doesn't fit. It, it's absolutely, it's like an obvious choice. Is it too obvious? I guess maybe is the question. Agreed. No, I think it, I think it's the right choice. Um, I really liked it, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to find it to listen to it again before we recorded, but, you know, it's so early for this film. I, I don't think it's been released anywhere. Um, if you go to the Lomatos, the name of the band, if you go to, I think, their Bandcamp page, I think at least the theme is on there. Oh, they, it is. Okay, cool. Thanks for I letting me so. know. I'll, I'll go yeah. check that out. Well, I mean, I guess this kind of sums up how I feel about the movie just in general is uh, I feel like this movie is kind of cinematic comfort food 
in a way because the story, the approach and everything is is really well done, but it's also really, it's pretty familiar. So it's the sort of, like, I'll, I'll watch this again, uh, and and I think I would have a good time watching it again. It's, you can't go, it's something you can't go wrong with, in my opinion. Like, I, um, and I, and I shouldn't cut the film short because, uh, well, sell it short, I should say, because uh, the ending of this really, really worked for me, actually. And I think that was kind of the part that brought this, uh, brought it up a little higher for me. Interesting. Uh, other than just being comfort food. Uh, I can relate it to something like Stand By Me, because in Stand By Me, you have these kids who are doing something kind of macabre, but they're still very innocent and they're doing this thing completely for fun. But the truth is what they're getting themselves into in both of those, in both of these cases is, is actually really dangerous and has serious consequences to it. Mm -hmm. And so the lead character in this film, much like Will Wheaton and Stand By Me, uh, he's a, he, he's kind of thrust into adulthood kind of at the end of this movie because of what he goes through, you know, and, for me, uh, like that transformation and kind of like the climactic part of this film was enough for me that uh, it, it, it it bumped it up from just being an average film, I would say. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think the the two detractors for me and, they, you know, I think they're both things that might change on a second viewing, you know, as I become more familiar with the film were just the immediacy of seeing these young actors were not quite on the level of the better watch out kids for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also it's just a little bit too much fan service for me. I like it. I like the references, but at some point like in turbo kid, it worked because the whole movie is taking place in this fantasy land. I think in this film, it took me out of the reality because this film was supposed to be grounded in reality. And so mm-hmm. uh, many of the references worked, but I just felt like there were a few too many where it was like, okay, like, you get it. We're in the eighties, <laughs> you know, uh, mm. like there, I just, the films that I think of, which are two that I just also recently saw, um, Victor Crowley, which I'll be talking about later tonight, which has this kind of meta layer that is good, but then it, it kind of keeps you from completely buying into it. The other one uh, was space camp, which I just watched with my kids. And I don't know if you, do you guys remember space camp at all? No. That was one from my childhood. It's an 80s movie. It, I, I, I um, think but, I saw it way back when, but I don't remember. I have to, I don't know if you even know if I saw the whole thing, to be honest with you. I think it was on cable back in the day. It, it was a fun movie at, when I was a kid, you know? And right. so I, I knew my kids would like it, but I had tried, I'd bought the DVD and tried to watch it a few years ago. I was like, oh, I can't watch this. <laughs> but I knew my kids would like it, so I, I let them watch it the other day it's got a kind of a fun 80s cast it's got larry b scott who was in those revenge of the nerds films uh kelly preston who probably is better known as john travolta's wife um leah thompson who is uh marty mcfly's mom Mm -hmm. in back to the future Uh, kate capshaw's in it and uh tom scarrett and a young walking phoenix this is the first thing i ever saw walking phoenix in Wow. But oh, wow. it's a, basically it's about these kids who go to space camp and they're accidentally shot into space with one of their instructors and they have to be able, they have to try to get back to earth. And it was just a fun adventure as a kid and I loved it, but there's so many Star Wars references, it's constant. <laughs> and 
I, it didn't bother me as a child at the time, but watching it now, I'm just like, okay, yeah, you like Star Wars. Please stop making a Star Wars reference every five minutes, like the Joaquin Phoenix characters referring to everyone as, okay, Han Solo, all right, Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's like, this is not clever, guys. You're just saying the names of characters in another movie. So um, anyway, I, I, that was a, a small detractor for me for uh, summer of 84 as well. It's just, it, it got to be a bit much, but I agree with you. I think uh, people who are fans of this, I guess, new subgenre, the eighties bike movie. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're calling it? I'm, ca- I'm calling it the, I'm calling it kids on bikes, kids on bikes. I like it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. The all American neighborhood, the burbs is one of those magical adventure comedies of the eighties. They, they captured something that everyone's trying to recreate now. And I don't know that we're, we've seen something that perfectly recaptures that vibe yet, but I don't mind that people are giving it a shot. So I think I'd recommend people check this out as well. I'm not going to rate these movies until um, I see the theatrical versions because you never know what's going to change between uh, Sundance and and release, right? But um, yeah, wow, we talked about that for a long time. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're not getting bored, Dave. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean that that was one of the ones I was really interested in when I when that was when you had mentioned that because I've seen other people on Twitter talking about it. So that was when I was interested. Great poster. It's got an awesome poster. Oh, the missing the- on the milk carton. Yeah, with a skull. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Nice. Uh, I I would I th- I think I like this movie a, a little better than you did. Uh, uh, it it just sounds like I and because I won't be on, I probably won't be on later to discuss this during a theatrical release. Uh, just in case, I'll throw out a number rating. You almost talked me down, but I I think I'm gonna still stick with an eight. Um, and I would say if I I would say it's worth seeing in the theater, if you like this kids on bikes subgenre, I don't think you'd be disappointed if you went and saw this. Otherwise I'd call it a high priority rental. I'm recommending people see it too. I I will say don't go in expecting turbo kid because it is very different. Yes. But you'll be happy to know that I saw the directors have turbo kid two listed in pre-production on IMDb. So Oh, that's yeah. interesting. The directors were so awesome too. I, I, I do want to say when we spoke to them after the screening, just super friendly. Um, Anouk Wiesel and Francois Simard. I think they are a dating couple. I'm not positive. And I think Johan Carl Wiesel is her brother. I'm not positive on any of that, but um, they were all super cool. They were actually like hugging everyone. I don't know if they did that in your screening. But. They did. Yeah. They, they said at the beginning, they're like, and then also we'll be here to give out free hugs. Yeah. And, and tons <laughs> of people took them up on it in my screening and they were just getting all these hugs. And, and the guy, Johan Carl, we sell, he was like bawling every time someone gave him a hug, like he was having the time of his life. I was very happy for oh, that. That's awesome. Spread the love, Josh. Good vibes. Good vibes here on Horror Movie Podcast. Well, let's change the vibe a little bit and talk about Hereditary because that is one terrifying, messed up film. That is a dark experience. (laughs) First thing I want to say about Hereditary, just for, you know, bragging rights, is I think this is probably, other than Carnival of Souls, I think this is the best horror film that's shot in Utah. I'm going to go out there and... I think it 100% is the best horror film shot. I like Carnival of Souls as a classic bit of weirdness, but this is this year's The Witch, Raw, Get Out, the movie that plays at Sundance that everyone is talking about. 
This mm-hmm. is the one. Yeah, you stole that from me. I was going to say the exact same thing. I apologize. Sorry about that. No, no, I wasn't. Not. <laughs> but it, you're right. It's absolutely, it's in that lineage of the Babadook and uh, the witch, and it follows. It is, it's the horror movie from Sundance to see. And again, like, I'd, like I said, bragging rights, it was shot here in Utah. And noticeably so as well, like, Utah really is a character in this film, to to a certain extent anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, there are... The mountains especially, just like... Yes. And and just the location of this house, it's not it's not a cinematic fabrication or anything. There are a lot of people who live in house place like that around here, just up in the hills, right. kind of secluded, pretty far away from uh, everything. So this is the first feature by director Ari Aster. I think that's how you say his name. And uh, like I said, shot in Salt Lake Park City and surrounding areas. It stars Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne, Alex Wolf, and Millie Shapiro. And first off, I kind of want to talk about Tony Collette because for me, this is the best acting I've seen her do in anything. And I don't, and that's not like a disparaging remark about Tony Collette, like she hasn't done anything good. I'm saying that this is a really good performance. Um, her character has to go to some pretty dark places. It's the sort of role that, you know, as a human being, you would age several years having to play this thing because of all the horrible places you'd have to take yourself. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah, she gets brutalized in a lot of her films, and I think I f- sometimes find her grating, but mostly I I have a lot of respect for her as an actress, and I agree with you. This is one of her very best roles that I've ever seen. And I, and I think she's good in almost everything. So, yeah. Yeah. And she has a, she has a ton of screen time. So this film is actually over two hours and, uh, she has a lot of, uh, emotionally heavy scenes and a lot of long ones. Uh, and I don't know, I was just, I wasn't really aware that she had this, this level, uh, to her. And so I was, I was impressed. (laughs) I'll say that. Anyway, I'll go ahead and read a synopsis real quick before we dive any deeper. So, when Ellen, the matriarch of the Graham family, passes away, her daughter's family begins to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry. The more they discover, the more they find themselves trying to outrun the sinister fate they seem to have inherited. Making his feature debut, writer-director Ari Aster unleashes a nightmare vision of a domestic breakdown that exhibits the craft and precision of a nascent auteur, transforming a family's tragedies into something ominous and deeply disquieting and pushing the horror movie uh, into chilling new terrain with its shattering portrait of heritage gone to hell. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so uh, for me, this really appealed to my horror sensibilities because... What I love very most is when you take real life human emotions like grief and um, loss or mental illness or something and you you kind of amplify it through the lens of horror. You, you take it from drama and you exaggerate it. And this is why I love the horror genre is it allows a, a, a certain level of exploration that a clean-cut drama does not necessarily allow for. Mm-hmm. What did you think, Josh? I loved it. I, this is one of those movies where I feel like the less people know going in, the more they'll enjoy yeah. it. So I don't want to say too much about it, but um, 
I really do feel like Tony Collette could be in the Oscar contention if if horror you know can get some respect next year the way it has this year. I think Tony Collette has a really good shot at getting a a best actress nomination for this. I thought it's on that level to me. I totally agree. Yeah, I wrote that in my notes. Tony Collette is giving an Oscar level performance. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this movie is even su- uh, receiving surprisingly high praise from mainstream critics as well. And I think a lot of it might have to do with the performances because outside of Tony Collette, uh, the other supporting performances in it are really quite good. Specifically, Alex Wolf, I think, has some <laughs> really great moments where, well, I don't really want to say what he's going through just because I don't want to spoil any of the movie, but wow he right. has to go some places too and it's 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 pretty fascinating and i thought millie shapiro was really interesting in the film as well agreed i was, I was surprised by her right um, i will say i would not recommend there's a new trailer that's out i would not recommend people watch it and just go to go see the film if possible just because i think it shows more than um than i would want people to see before they saw it even though it's a great trailer Right. I would try to avoid it if you know you're going to want to see it anyway. Great PSA. I, I mean, if Josh and I are both telling you right now, this is a really good movie. Don't watch a trailer. Just go watch it. Um, watch yes. it as soon as you can. <laughs> and uh, I will say right out the gate, this did get picked up by A24 already. I think it was A24 had it before it even before the festival even started. Um, and so this mm. is being released. I don't know how wide, but it's coming out on June 8th to theaters. Okay. Um, awesome. I wanted to say a couple other things about this movie, if if that's okay. No, I want you to say anything you want. Absolutely. So the the other really striking thing about this movie is the use of miniatures. Uh, so Tony Collette's character is an artist who builds uh, miniatures, and they're kind of like little. They they range from houses to rooms, all sorts of things, and uh, it's in the film she's kind of. It seems like she's preparing for an exhibit of her work, and that's one of her stressors is that she's trying to get ready for this. But um, the opening shot of this film is this really interesting uh, thing where uh, well, the camera goes in through the window of this house, and as it goes in through this ha- like the, to this room in this house, then the camera goes over to this miniature of what looks to be the exact same house. And we go over and the film actually starts in this miniature. And the whole film has this kind of littered throughout where you'll get a wide shot of not just the house, but other things. And it takes your eye kind of, it takes your eye a second to realize, are you looking at the real thing? Or are you looking at a shot of the miniature? And it gives this really eerie, uncanny feeling. I, I, I don't know exactly how to read the miniatures because I'm not, I'm not always good at like understanding metaphor and stories. I'm kind of terrible sure. at that, but <laughs> I'm sure you picked up on what it, what they were trying to say with it, Josh. But did you like that the use of the miniatures? I did, yeah. And I, and I, I that is one of the things that I think some audiences will find annoying, but I personally love it. Oh, I thought it was amazing. I I think this movie is visually really interesting a lot of the time. In fact, like one of my favorite visuals from a horror film in the last 10 years comes from the very ending of this and I won't this won't spoil it. I don't think cut it out if it does, but it involves a treehouse. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Just every time I think about that shot, I get the chills. It's really cool. <laughs> I think this movie might be more enjoyable to a mainstream audience than something like the witch. I would, I would love it right. if a24 took another risk and gave this wide stream release. Cause I want more of this. Yeah, I was kind of bummed that the all of the reviews they're using in their press materials are from mainstream audience sources because I would love to see what horror fans yeah. are saying about it. But um, you know, it's all like USA Today says a horror masterpiece or whatever. It's like who cares yeah. what USA Today says about? <laughs> but on the other hand, that means that the film is going to get, um, like you say, like a, a broader mainstream audience, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm happy for horror for that reason. Yeah, for me too. I would love to do a spoiler discussion on this because I really, you know, it's one of those things I don't really want to say too much more about. Oh, I do want to say one dumb Sundance Film Festival uh, moment is that the, uh, so at the very beginning of this movie, the movie starts out because of the grandmother or Tony Collette's mother in this film dies. And uh, before the movie started, I saw the actress who played that woman in the coffee garden next Mm -hmm. to the theater where I was going to and she was just <laughs> sitting there like dressed so perfectly prim and whatever she looked like a ghost like and she was by herself oh, wow. and so like when I go to see this movie um you know and I saw the grandma pop up there I'm like I'm like oh my god she was she's actually dead that's like her ghost was haunting the coffee shop next door <laughs> anyway my uh, Sundance moment is I, I saw summer of 84 with a friend of mine who's a uh, he, he, you know, he acts in LA and in, and in Utah and he was in frozen. He had a bit part in Adam green's frozen. He's the guy that strands them on the chairlift at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so he was sitting next to me at, um, at summer of 84. And had I known that we were going to be, this would be the same episode where we were uh, talking to Adam green. I would have figured out some way to tie that in better, but. Ooh, can I do my final do my final thing on heredity? Just a rating and recommendation. Oh, do I'm you, sorry. Sure, care? yeah. Okay. I was just gonna say that this is a a nine out of ten for me. I think it's likely to go up. Uh, I think this is gonna top ten lists. And I think if I could pick one listener who this movie is for, I think I would say Juan. I think Juan is gonna love the hell out of this movie. Um, so I'm excited to talk right. to him about it. But anyway, I say nine out of ten. Get your butt to the theater when it comes out. That's all. Yeah, I I will all I'll agree with you. This is top tenless material. This is a seat in the theater type of film. This will be one of the big horror movies people are talking about in 2018. So just see it at your earliest convenience, which it sounds yep. like will be this summer. I am really looking forward to that one now. Good, good. The, there's one other yeah. film that I want to talk about very briefly. People are going to say, ugh, when I first tell you what it is. <laughs> But I promise you, it's good. This film is called Search, Ugh. and it stars John John Cho. <laughs> it's a it's a film that takes place completely on computer screens, and I think after Unfriended and Open Windows, there are people who are fine never seeing that again. Um, ironically, the producer of Unfriended is the same producer of Search, and back when he was doing promotional work for Unfriended, he saw he mentioned he saw this as a, a horror subgenre that there will be films on computer screens is like a new genre of film that we're going to be seeing, and I think this is like his mission is to to push this, and this is exactly I was kind of hoping Jay would be on here because I think this is exactly what he was worried about when he went on his little diatribe about. Um, 
horror movies all being about technology and, and Twitter and social media and everything. But I, but I just promise you guys, it's really good. And you forget that it's all through the screen for much of the film. After about 10, 15 minutes, you just get completely sucked in. And this has done so much better than those moments in paranormal activity. Was it three that they kind of do the, the Skype stuff or that's um, unfriended or open windows. It, and I liked open windows and I know a lot of, I know some people liked unfriended, um, but man, search is awesome. And it, it's, it's slightly more in the thriller area, but basically what you have is this guy, his, his wife has passed away. So it's just him and his daughter and they're, they're suffering through this tragedy together, but they're not con- kind of connecting on an emotional level. And his daughter disappears and the film starts on his computer and then eventually goes to his daughter's computer as he starts to look for clues as to where she could have gone. One thing I love about it is it uses real um, websites and stuff. So it's actually like Chrome and FaceTime and Facebook. It's the real websites. It doesn't have this kind of fakey looking technology that takes you out of it. And that's cool. But it also just is very cinematic for more than you can believe. And and it goes to cell phones as well. And um, I don't know, it was really effectively done. I was blown away actually. Uh, unfortunately, the director said in the Q and a, he's not um, going to ever do this again. Cause it was so hard because <laughs> I, I would like to see him go on and do this again, you know, but um, that's not going to be the case. But anyway, that is search. And um I recommend people see that one in the theater as well. It's a really fun. This would be a really fun theater experience. It was a really fun theater experience. I was going to drop one more Sundance film just to quickly mention oh. it, but if it's if it's too late, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, go okay. for it. So I saw one other documentary called uh, The Cleaners, which is scarier than both hmm. the horror films that I saw at Sundance this year. It's a real... What? I didn't hear about that. <laughs> well, it probably would seem dismissible just based on the description it's about the people who have to clean through the things that get posted up on social media so like uh things that get posted up on twitter or facebook these there are people throughout the world who are responsible for reviewing all of this content and approving whether it can go on the internet or not and they have to watch this stuff so it just kind of shows the sort of life these people live having to watch these things and, and it goes a lot deeper than to kind of like the uh internet politics but holy cow the the lives those people have to live you know having to review all the horrendous horror of humanity that gets posted onto the to the internet is just incredibly disturbing that's kind of a jay of the dead movie but i'm a big sissy when it comes to real life violence and there was just enough real life violence Mm. in that movie that i had you know nightmares so um the cleaners there was a Ryan Reynolds movie a few years ago that kind of went under the radar about a child prostitution mm. ring. Um, do you remember that movie? I don't. I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, it, it showed these police officers who investigate like child pornography and it just looked miserable. Like they looked like they wanted to yeah. die, you know? Oh, yeah. And, um, I can't imagine having that be your job that yeah. you have to look at all this terrible yeah, and these stuff. people, these people saw stuff like that. They saw things like, like beheadings, terrorist activities. They saw suicides and Ugh. 
Oh my hell. <laughs> it was awful. Anyway, so real life horror, if you care to subject yourself to such a thing, it's called The Cleaners. It is a yeah. incredibly well done documentary. Wow. I gave it four out of four stars just because of the, and that the, uh, based on the Sundance voting ballots. But anyway, that's the only other thing I had to mention. Cool. Well, that will do it for our 2018 Sundance coverage. It sounds like these are all recommends. So there are four recommendations for you, if not more, uh, coming out of the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Kagan, let people know where they can find you online. Yeah, the best place to find me online is my website, kaganbreitenbach.com. You can listen to my music there. I compose music for films and games. Uh, from there, you can find my Twitter and Facebook and Universal Monsters cast, of course. We're going to be getting back into the swing of things here soon. So, Awesome. For those who don't know, Joel has been going through a move. And so um, once, I mean, he technically he's he's moved, but once everything's settled, we are going to uh, get back into the swing of things, as Kagan said, with Universal Monsters cast. And we actually have a new show that um, we'll be letting everyone know about very soon. Awesome. Cool. Okay, Dave. Well, let's right. move into our mini reviews here. We're going to do two sections of mini reviews, one before and one after our feature reviews of the evening. Let's start off with Mayhem. This is one that made um, our lists and honorable mentions at the at the end of the year uh, when we did our 2017 yep. lists, but we haven't really reviewed mm-hmm. it on the show. Um, tell everybody what you thought about Mayhem. I think it was number eight on my top ten list. Um I really enjoyed it. It's funny how these things sort of come in pairs. You know, I thought it was just interesting how we had these two um, office horror films or people trapped in an office environment for one reason or another uh, and then forced to deal with uh, co-workers who, uh, for one reason or another, are coming after them or, or turning violent or, right. uh, you know, whatever the case may be. We have a friend on Twitter um, who's at John's Horror Corner on Twitter. He, he retweets yes. a lot. He's on the Movies, Films, Flicks podcast, and they did recently an episode uh, where they talked about office horror as a new subgenre. And this last year, nice. don't forget, we also had that movie, The Night Watchman. So that's funny. And we, you know, we talked about what other office horror films are there. Well, there's Stalled, maybe. Does that count? And and Severance, that's an office retreat. Does that count? Yes, that is funny. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but this one is is dealing with an infection. It sort of keeps you from acting out your or letting your wild side take control. Yeah, your most um, you know, desires come to the forefront. Exactly. Right. So once that's gone, you're you're you know it's no holds barred, and that's what we see in this movie. Is you know it is there's an outbreak of it, um, and what's interesting is that the main character has just been laid off and was on his way out the door with all of his stuff. Knowing he was wrongfully dismissed, he was basically taking the fall for something that happened within the company. Right. And uh, so on the way out the door, he, he gets this infection. He's locked in there. They, they um, quarantine because it's only – and they said, okay, well, we've, we've released the cure, the, I guess, sort of antibiotic, so to speak, into the air system. The effects of the virus uh, will dissipate within, I don't know, was it 18 hours, something like that, 12 hours? Something like that. Yeah, we should yeah, say although this is an infection film and it's not a zombie movie. They it no, it's, it's not. It's similar to the rage virus, but they're still sentient. They're still themselves. They're just kind of this bolder, more violent version of themselves. Right. 
Um, so what you have is this guy decides, you know, screw this. I'm going to, I'm going to use this and get my job back. Uh, and he's trying to make it from, uh, the floor he's on all the way up to the top floor where the board is meeting and he can go up there and basically demand his job back. Uh, and it's just, uh, following his attempts, um, to get up there, you know, to, mm-hmm. to get to that top floor. Cause you have to have a special pass. He's got to he's got to get up to one floor, then get up to another one, and then finally, you know, get the pass from somebody to get up to the top floor. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like the raid. It's interesting in that sense. <laughs> yes. Yes. And he and he ends up he ends up he picks up uh, uh, this girl starts um, the girl is uh, tags along, and this is a girl who earlier in the film um, she had come looking for. You know, so for his help with something, and he basically turned her away, saying, "No, there's nothing the company can do for you." And it's interesting because they almost lead you to believe that this girl might have been the one who brought it in. But anyway, uh, it's fun. It's a fun movie. There's comedy in there, and you know, it definitely has some comedy, but it is brutal. I mean, there's it's it doesn't shy away from the violence. Um, you know, the, this this thing gets uh, ultra violent. Uh, in spots and it never loses its sense of humor i don't think i mean throughout the whole movie it kind of keeps it uh but by the same token you know you're you're kind of cringing at, at, at what's happening on screen because it's it's it uh it gets pretty bloody at times we should say um you know we have again this is the adam green episode this film is directed by Joe Lynch, who is Adam Green's buddy and podcast co-host over at the Movie Crypt mm-hmm. podcast. And um, they they are cam- do cameos in each other's films. And they're, I guess, co-stars on Holliston as well for people who have seen that show. But um, yeah, Joe Lynch is in the movie and he does a pretty good job. He's the tech guy. He's the director. Mm. And I thought he was good. I agree. I just want to make a couple of quick notes, if I could. Stephen Yun is the lead in this film, and he is excellent. Uh, he, people will recognize him from The Walking Dead. I think it's awesome to see him in a starring role, and I just think he does a great job here. The co-lead is Samara Weaving, and she kind of came out of the blue for me this year. I had never heard of her before. She had a huge year in 2017. She was the star of The Babysitter, and I thought she was excellent in that. We mentioned that movie earlier. She is amazing in Mayhem. And then she had kind of a small role in Three Billboards, which is getting all this Oscar buzz. I feel like 2017 is the year of Samara Weaving. I'm like, who is this lady? Then I thought, wait a minute, she's Australian, Weaving. Is she Hugo Weaving's daughter? Mm. She has these crazy eyes. And I looked her up and actually it turns out, yeah, she is Hugo Weaving's niece. Oh, nice. So anyway, Samara Weaving is definitely someone to watch out for. Yeah, definitely. I also just really quick wanted to read a tweet from Stephen King, the master himself. For people who follow Stephen King on Twitter, he watches a lot of horror movies toward the end of the year and tweets about them. He's very gracious, and it's clear that he is a horror movie fan. King tweeted today, Stephen Yun shines in mayhem. It's gory as hell, but sharp as the instruments, active screwdrivers, etc., that some of the crazy corporate suits wield once they are infected. As witty as it is vicious. I agree. Anyway, I just wanted to pipe in with those few things. All right. So what would be your rating and recommendation? We already know that it made your year-end list, Dave. I would probably, geez, I'd, I'd probably give it um, 10 to 8.5, but I think I'd give it a 9. And I'd say uh, it's it's a buy. 
it might make an interesting double feature with the Belko experiment. I do, and I did like the Belko experiment, but I think this one is the better of the two. You know, if I had to pick one over the other, I'd mm-hmm. say this one's the better of the two. I agree. Um, you know, but yeah, I'd say I'd say a nine out of ten, and it's a it's a buy. Great. Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight, and I'm going to call it a high priority rental. But I I quite enjoyed it as well. And after you rent it, it may well be a buy for you. But um, but I'm going to call it a yeah high priority rental there. Okay. It would be a fun one to see in theaters if you got a chance. I just don't think that's a. Yeah, unfortunately, that, that, might, that time might have passed. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a great one to see in the theater. All right, so that is Mayhem from 2017. Up next, I'm going to talk about a film called Desolation. So Desolation is an IFC Midnight release, and it's a little indie survival horror film from 2017. This is one that I really wanted to see a, because it had this awesome poster and B because I thought it could make Jay's uh, year end list. And he was very busy and I had a lot of time to screen stuff while I was working. So I thought oh, I'm going to watch this to see if I should recommend it to Jay for his year end list. Ultimately I didn't. Um, it's a little flat for me. It, it's very low budget. And um and just kind of, I don't know, there wasn't much to it, in my opinion. It, it's There are these three people go on a camping trip. It's a woman and her son and the woman's best friend go on this camping trip. And um, they soon find that there is a creepy hiker following behind them everywhere they go in the woods. To the point where if they stop walking, he stops walking and just stares at them. And he's got these sunglasses on, so you can never really – and he just a blank face, so you can never really get the sense of what he is doing or what he wants. But he just will not leave them alone. Eventually at night, uh, he comes and takes one of the girls. And so it becomes this um, you know, life or death type of scenario. It was okay. you know, And I think for someone who likes a survival horror film like Jay – I think this is a rental recommendation for him. I don't think everyone's going to like this. The performances are okay. Um, It's a fine film, but it's not a great film. So, you know, for me, this is in the six range and in the low priority rental range, unless you're a survival horror fan. And then that could bump it up to a rental or high priority rental for you. But that is desolation from 2017. All right, let's talk about Kaleidoscope. Did you have a chance to see Kaleidoscope? No, I did not, unfortunately. Right. Um, Kaleidoscope is a is really almost a one-man show. It stars Toby Jones, who is a fantastic character actor that you have definitely seen in in things, especially, you know, mainstream movies. He's been in everything from Captain America, the winter soldier to Tinker Taylor soldier spy, but he's also been in horror films like the mist and my personal favorite film that he's in is barbarian sound studio. That is just this trippy horror film that has this, just this crazy uh, Italian kind of logic to it that calls to mind the giallo era and also something like blowout. Um, but it's just super, super creepy. I loved um, Barbarian Sound Studio. Toby Jones, for those of you who don't know him, he's he's kind of this guy who he's always 
you know, you talked about movies coming in twos with the Belko experiment and mayhem. He's the guy who's always in the other movie. You know, the year, right. the, the year that Capote came out, if you remember right. that. <laughs> yeah, he, he was in the other Capote movie. He was movie. in the other Capote movie, <laughs> Infamous, right? So while Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. is winning Best Actor playing Truman Capote, Toby Jones is doing a fantastic job also playing Truman Capote in Infamous. Yes. The year that that movie Hitchcock came out, which was fine, you know, Anthony Hopkins film. Toby Jones is playing Hitchcock in The Girl, which I would say is the right. superior of those two films. You and know, it's definitely the more memorable. You know that when yeah. when I think back, and that's the I do remember. I remember The Girl more mm-hmm. um, than I do Hitchcock, and I enjoyed Hitchcock. I did like it. I thought it was a good. I thought it was a good movie. Uh, but yeah, you definitely do remember The Girl a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Definitely the more controversial of the two. Anyway, Toby Jones is fantastic, and he doesn't often get a chance to uh, to star in a movie, but in Kaleidoscope he does. This is really the entire movie it, uh, rests on his shoulders. It's a psychological thriller about um, this guy, Toby Jones. He's in this really, really weird relationship with his mother, and he has this woman come to his house and she dies <laughs> and he has to kind of deal with that situation. And <laughs> the whole movie, it's one of those films where you can't quite tell if he's the reliable narrator, if you should believe what you're seeing or if you're in the psychosis of his mind. Uh, but it's just comp- extremely compelling start to finish and uh, just a fantastic film that I'd recommend people see if they like that kind of, you know, psychological thriller film about a descent into madness. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a, kind of one of those examinations of, of a broken person and the sadness that people deal with and how that sadness, if not handled appropriately can turn into horror for other people. But, you know, if you like a telltale heart type of film, if you like, uh, Jay often talks about, he loves a movie where like, we've got a dead body now to what are we going to do with it kind of situation. Um, if you enjoy that kind of film, you'll like Kaleidoscope. Uh, the, for me, this is uh, probably a 9.5 out of 10. I mean, the the only detractor is some audiences are going to find this really dull. It does only kind of take place in this guy's apartment. It is mostly in this guy's head. So if you can't enjoy that, you're not going to enjoy the film. Um, for people who do enjoy though, it's, it's kind of a masterpiece at, at what it is. So um, yeah, I give this one a 9.5 and I call it a high priority rental. So that is Kaleidoscope from nice. 2017. Let's get into some of our feature reviews, Dave. Why don't you start us off with mom and dad? Multiple reports are now coming in of parents murdering their own children. Listen to me. We have to get out of the house before mom and dad come home. You take your right foot out! You do the hook, you poke the end, you Yes, it's mommy. Mommy's here. Are you two all right? We're not coming out, okay? You have to leave. You're going to help us, let's go! Alrighty, uh, Mom and Dad, it is a 2018 movie written and directed by Brian Taylor. And it is about, it, it centers on this family, uh, fathers Brent 
and a mother, Kendall, played by Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair. A teenage daughter, Carly, uh, played by Ann Winters. They have a young son, or an uh, adolescent son, Josh, played by Zachary Arthur. And they have um, a housemaid, I guess it's someone who just comes in and, and cooks and cleans uh, one or two days a week for them. And she's there at the opening of this movie with her daughter. You know, it starts off normal day. Dad goes to work. The mother goes to her, her workout class. Uh, the uh, daughter goes to school. But so, things start to escalate. Um, the, it starts off with a story about a woman who had parked her car on train tracks. She's had her young son in a baby seat in the back. And she got out and walked away and allowed the train to hit, you know, the, her vehicle and, and kill her son. This is the mm. sort of breaking news that they have. And they have... Um, surveillance footage that, that showed her getting out and you know reports are saying that this is the the child's mother and um you know all of this stuff is starting to break out well carly is at the you know at school with her friend all of a sudden certain kids are being called down to the office and something happens an alarm goes off all the kids go rushing out and all their parents are on the other side of a fence calling to them saying come here come here but there are policemen keeping the kids policemen and teachers keeping the kids away from the parents at the same time so basically the 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 the, the main crux of the movie is something has happened to the parents that makes them want to kill their children okay um, now, I was thinking of Jay in a way when watching this movie, because in this movie, nothing but kids are in peril, and it's all from their parents. I won't say that it's it's overly gory. I think most of the kills happen off screen, but it is uh, does have some very disturbing scenes in it. There's one involving a newborn that, man, I was <laughs> sort of really on the edge of my seat in that scene. Uh, it's handled very well. And, and other moments where you know, and it's interesting because the parents only feel it towards their own children. Like they will be murder their child and then turn to the child's friend and say, oh, hey, how are you? How's everything going? You know, like it's it's just this sort of click. Something happened where the only the only, you know, that they have to kill their children. Um, the news is on top of this. The media is on top of it. And there's, you see reports throughout. And there's actually a pretty good scene where they're talking to this one father um, about he had just killed either his child or children. And they're talking to him. And he's like, look, you know, I, I know this is horrible. And I'm trying to drum up some crocodile tears here for you to, you know, to let you know. But I, I just don't feel all that bad about this. It feels wow. right. <laughs> so, you know, so the movie, and it is a dark comedy. Now, the reason I'm saying it's not your typical family is Nicolas Cage is in full over-the-top Nicolas Cage mode from moment one. Yes. You can't even tell when this guy changes, to be honest with you, because he is insane the moment you see him. I mean, this is Nicolas Cage at his at, at the Nicolas Cage best, you know, and he is just crazy in this film. I love that. Um, and it's fun. It's it's a fun performance because you get to see him. He's insane. Um, one of the interesting things they do is they do flashback to those moments in the past where the, a child has done something that sort of, you know, and we all have them as parents where the kids will do something that you just like, you get so angry with them. And they flash back to moments when these when the kids, um, you know, in the Ryan household had done something like that and how the parents reacted to it. So it's almost as if the parents now it's showing, you know, like, like they did the right thing then. 
But now the buildup is, hey, you know, we got to kill you. <laughs> um, uh, now, like I said, it is a comedy, so it goes over the top. There are things in it, especially towards the end with the parents, um, you know, with the Ryans going after their own kids, where you're kind of like, uh, you know, sort of their methods and, um, you know, some of what happens. Uh, I, I, I just had a, I had a little bit of an issue with, with that, um, you know, especially something, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't want to get too deep into it because it's towards the end of the movie. I'm going to ask about the comedy really quick. Um, we had a couple of listeners talking about this on the comment boards. Brian was asking people if he had seen it. He seemed to like it. Um, he said it was worth checking out. He gave it a 7 out of 10. Very enjoyable and wacky, uh, he said. And then Carrie, and I also saw Jake mention this on, on Twitter, people talking about how they're just not fans of horror comedy. Do you think someone who's not a fan of horror comedy could enjoy this, or is it is it mostly comedy? No, no. I, I don't know that I'd say it's mostly comedy. Like I said, it does have some disturbing scenes in it, even involving Nicolas Cage's character, who, as over the top as he is, you know, he he has his his moments. I mean, it is... Uh, there's definitely comedy in there. And a lot of it happens, like I said, later in the film, but I don't know that I wouldn't say that it is, it's not comedy horror, put it that way. You know, this is, this is the irony to the situation throughout. Yeah. And it's situational, it's situational comedy in a lot of ways, but I mean, with Nicolas Cage, you know, every moment he's on screen, you're not actually buying that this guy could actually is actually out there. You know that this is that this is a real person. <laughs> sure. You know all along, hey, this is Nicolas Cage. You know, doing doing a an exaggerated uh, interpretation of this father. So that's where I think a lot of the comedy comes in, and it does have its tense moments. And there's a really uh, fun cameo in here by Lance Henriksen uh, that okay. I that I did enjoy. So I would ultimately give this one probably a 7.5 out of 10. It's a high-priority rental. Okay. I think it's worth checking out. I really I, do. It's interesting how you were talking about the, the child actors um, in, in the Sundance coverage. Yeah. Uh, about after last year, you know, you said that the kids in summer of 84 were good, but compared to, you know, uh, you know, Better Watch Out and It, and of course, you know, Black Coat's Daughter and all those kind of movies. Yeah. Um, that it's just not quite at that level. I would say the same thing here. The children are, the kid actors are not bad. And there's, um, was it Carly has a, has a, a boyfriend, uh, who, who figures into it too. And there's an actual kind of a creepy scene with him when he's, um, taking his, uh, PSATs, um, you know, for college. So they weren't bad. They were fine. You know, they're perfectly fine in this, but they didn't stand out like the children actors did. In, in 2017, but they certainly don't detract from the movie. The performances they, they deliver are, are fine. Okay. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Did you see, you know, the uh, film The Battery, the zombie film? Did you ever see that? I never did. And I know you had talked about that and I never did get a chance to see that okay. one. Well, I love that movie and Jay liked it a lot mm-hmm. too. Um, anyway, the director of The Battery I saw on Twitter was raving about Mom and Dad. He said he had a great time watching it. Yeah, and I would I would agree with that. I think it is a fun – and it's a brisk movie. It's, it's like an hour, 20 minutes, so it, it's not like a big investment of time either. Um, but it's definitely – and it, even at an hour, 20, I thought it moved pretty fast. You know, I think it, I think it went by pretty fast. So – Okay. Definitely, definitely worth seeing. And it's not like, and it's funny because they don't even portray the parents as 
great parents to begin with. Both the stars and some of the supporting cast, you, you know, you don't look at them and say, wow, these are really great parents. They're not the greatest to begin with, <laughs> but, but it gets worse. They're better, <laughs> but it gets worse. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so definitely 7.5 and, uh, and worth checking out a high priority rental. Okay, cool. All right. Up next, we are going to have our feature review of The Devil's Gate. Hello? Is anybody there? Jackson, are you in there? I want to ask you a few questions. Come on, get him up. Special Agent Francis, Mr. Pritchard. I'm here investigating the disappearance of your wife and son. It's your wife's car, isn't it, Mr. Pritchard? Hey, don't do anything stupid. What the heck was that? I'm searching this house. I wouldn't do that if I were you. As God is my witness, I will not be responsible for what happened! Okay, The Devil's Gate is a 2018 film directed by Clay Staub. And Clay is a guy who has been working kind of behind the scenes as a second unit director for a long time. He was the second unit director of uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, the second unit director of Zack Snyder's 300 the second unit director of the prequel reboot of the thing. So he's done a lot of work like that. This is his directorial debut and man, it's an interesting little pot boiler of a film. So basically what you have here is this woman and child have disappeared from this small town. When I say small town, like extremely rural area where, you know, people are living in farmhouses and it's a, you know, 20 minute drive to the next house kind of an area, right? Just desolate. And it takes place in Devil's Gate, North Dakota. And this FBI agent is called in to see what's going on, you know, with the the disappearance of this girl and mom. And the local deputy assists her and they go out to begin the investigation as most of these, you know, domestic situations do uh, investigating the father. So they go out to this farmhouse to talk to the dad and the dad's played by, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Milo or Milo Ventimiglia? He was in that TV Mm. show heroes is probably what he's Uh, best known for. Um, But they go out to investigate at his, at his farmhouse and he just seems insane. And he seems like he's hiding something. And specifically, it seems like he's hiding something in his basement. And the audience is given the expectation that he has his wife and his child locked up in the basement and he's potentially torturing them. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just say it's something much more sinister is locked in his basement. <laughs> And there are a lot of these like booby traps outside of his house early in the film. I think the first scene in the film, we see this guy, like his car breaks down on the side of the road. So he heads over to this farmhouse and uh, he's kind of, he like hears like these like crazy noises coming from the basement. So he's like kind of trying to like look in the windows and this insane booby trap, like a full body size bear trap flips up and just, completely destroys his body. Wow. And um, you're like, wow, 
this guy is trying to keep something out. Well, it turns out he might be trying to keep something in. And, uh, and as, uh, as I mentioned, the film is called the devil's gate. It has a lot of twists and turns in it. So I, again, I don't want to spoil too much, but the film is basically, you know, um, this dad in his farmhouse, Milo Ventimiglia, uh, the, uh, police, um, deputy played by Sean Ashmore, who he, people would recognize him. He was in the movie frozen. Adam Green's movie frozen again, comes up on the show. Um, he also funnily enough played the Iceman on, uh, the X-Men movies. So frozen. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And um, the FBI agent is played by a lady named Amanda Scholl and people who have seen the television series of 12 monkeys would recognize her. She's Dr. Cassandra Rayleigh in uh, the 12 monkeys TV series. She's also people will might've seen her on um, pretty little liars. She was on that show a bit as well. And she's done a lot of television acting. She's Okay. Uh, it's really for me, it's the dad's movie, man. He is going through a lot in the, as this character, but again, it, the film constantly is twisting and turning. And there are a few different reveals along the way where I went, Oh, that's what's going on. And then 10 minutes later, we're like, Nope, that's what's going on. It was a lot of fun, you know, and it, it doesn't all depend on the twists and the hidden information, but I quite enjoyed it. I don't even necessarily want to say the specifics of the subgenre because I think that might even spoil it, but it is a horror film. So you can go in as a horror fan, knowing that that's what you're getting. There are other genres blended into it, but uh, I would, if I were you, I would just go watch it and enjoy it. I think I would give this one an eight and I call it a high priority rental. This one's available on VOD. I'd, I'd watch it right away. It's a lot of fun. And I, this is going to be a buy for some people for appreciators of certain sub genres. This is going to become like a must own. I think for a lot of people, nice. so awesome. really fun movie. I had a great time with the devil's gate. Awesome. All right. At this point in the show, we'll, we'll do a couple more mini reviews. Um, I don't know if you probably haven't seen any more. Have you Dave? No, not of these. I have not. Oh. Okay. I want to talk about two other movies really. I'll do it quickly so we can uh-huh. get through them. But two that I, that I do want to talk about are 2017 films that we just didn't, weren't able to kind of dig into all the way. So the first one I want to talk about is called haunters, the art of the scare. And I did mention this during our top 10 episode. I believe this one is streaming on Netflix in the United States. So you people can check it out. It's a documentary. And it is about people who do haunted houses for fun, but they do it non-professionally. So these are people who do haunts out of their homes and about the extreme nature of what some of these people do. This is honestly one of the most upsetting films I've seen in a long time. And it's hard for me to even recommend it to people because it's so upsetting. Remember that documentary, The American Scream? that our uh, friend Michael Paul Stevenson, who directed best worst movie did um, that mm-hmm. one. I was also streaming, I think for free on Netflix and on Amazon prime, but that one is about people who do these quaint, lovely little haunted houses at their house during Halloween. Haunters are about people who disturb people for the rest of their lives, who give people these experiences where they are permanently scarred 
forever. <laughs> Having gone uh, on these haunted house experiences that are, that are just in neighborhoods. This is in a regular neighborhood. You're going trick or treating house to house and you come upon this haunt. Now, a lot of them, they don't let, don't let just anyone in, even though it is on the, your street during Halloween. One of the main homes that is featured in the film, you have to send in an application. There's a vigorous screening process. You have to Skype with the guy and he has to decide if he thinks you could handle it. And I would never, ever, ever put myself in this guy's hands. He seems <laughs> completely unsafe. He seems like a complete psychopath. And wow. it's terrifying, man. And you see people, and I, I feel free to call this a horror documentary because you see people truly in fear. They're being filmed during you know their experience in the haunted house the entire time. You see them tortured. They go through what is basically the equivalent of equivalent of waterboarding, you know, near drowning experiences, just being uh, berated, locked into caskets. Um, like nearly suffocated. I mean, it is grueling to watch and I, I mean, almost cried, but I also like almost threw up. Like I, I hate that this even exists in some ways, but man, it is one of the most disturbing documentaries I've seen. And, you know, and, and on the other hand, it's like this extremely objective, like, you know, step back from the documentary world. that's just showing you that this kind of weird subculture that exists, but the moments that are captured, at least in one of the homes, is just beyond anything I'd seen before. And the wow. idea that people sign up for this and that they're even willing to do it a second time after having gone through it is mind-boggling to me. But, uh, yeah, that's Haunters, the Art of the Scare on Netflix. I can in good conscience recommend it to anyone, but it's definitely the most horrific documentary that I saw in 2017. Wow. What do you think, Dev? Um... I don't know. <laughs> it, it it sounds uh, it sounds fascinating um, yeah. in one regard, but yeah, I mean, if if uh, uh, if if and I I consider you a little braver in these sort of aspects than me, and if it had you uh, in that condition, I'm I'm guessing I can't even imagine what it might do to me. So uh, I may brave it at some point, but um, I have a lot of empathy for the people who are going through this experience. I just can't. Right. Stand seeing someone in this state, you know, mm-hmm. and I think you kind of have to be a little bit sick to enjoy it, to be honest. That's why I'm worried about these people who are doing the haunted houses. Honestly, I would say, you know what I recommend people do? I recommend watch the first 20 minutes and turn it off because <laughs> okay. it doesn't get any better. It doesn't like it doesn't. The story doesn't really pay off in any super meaningful way. And you'll get the sense of how insane these haunted houses are. I think for horror fans, it's interesting just to see the depths people are willing to kind of go to to have a horror experience. I'm not willing to, though. Screw that. I'm never doing this ever, ever. <laughs> but, man. Anyway, let us know if you end up seeing Haunters or if you've seen Haunters. I am not recommending it, but I'm curious what other people's reactions are. All right. Lastly, for a mini review, I want to talk a little bit more about Tragedy Girls because I think this is one of the – best films of 2017 and i think it's not going to get reach its full audience until 2018 so i hope people and as the director posted recently on twitter please purchase a copy please rent pay to rent a copy rather than pirating a copy um his film is doing really well on torrent sites but we would like to see a filmmaker of this caliber get to make a second film so if you really care about quality horror cinema 
support the filmmakers, you know, um, Tyler McIntyre, who we first heard about this film from Chris Peckover was saying it was one of the best films that he'd seen recently, but uh, mm. Tyler McIntyre does a great job here. He's done a few other films uh, in the past that people may have seen. I think a uh, flicker and whiskey jacks or his two other features. I hadn't heard of those, but I had uh, heard of patchwork, which was his 2015 film. Um, I'd heard a lot of good things about his work on that movie. Basically what you have here. And we talked about this with Jay is this is another one of those. It's a film about social media, essentially at its core. It's about two teenage girls who are kind of mean girls, kind of Heather's ish. And they have this plan to, uh, murder people in their hometown, but their real plan is not just the murder, but to profit off the murder by creating a social media presence, Twitter accounts, a blog and video blog where they are essentially um, reporting, you know, and, and, and oftentimes with exclusive content because they are actually the murderers um, on, you know, these, these deaths that are happening in their town. And they've, they've picked a guide to frame who is a Jason Voorhees like serial killer, but they capture him and keep them in the, keep him in the shed and then proceed to do these killings, kind of blaming him for the attacks. And so it's a very meta movie. It's definitely a comedy. Um, I think it rides the line between horror comedy and comedy horror. I think it kind of gives you equal parts of both, but it is definitely a, a social satire and dark comedy. I think if you enjoy something like MTV scream or the television series scream Queens, then you would probably enjoy this. It has that kind of vibe to it. Um, I've also sure. compared it to uh, American psycho meets Heather's, you know, it has that kind of oh, okay. vibe to it. Um, so it's not for everyone, but I think if you like that stuff, you'll really enjoy this as well. What's really interesting, you know, talking about picking up a copy, it is um, releasing the same day as this episode, February second. Oh, awesome! Well, so uh, that's the yeah, the DVD and Blu-ray, uh, according to Amazon. Anyway, they have it releasing on February second, which is a Friday, which is very unusual. Most uh, most releases happen on Tuesday, uh, but they have this one re- uh, releasing on Friday. So. Um, just as I look at uh, my letterbox here, I see Dino gave this a, about an eight, the equivalent of an eight on letterbox. And nice. uh, Juan gave this one a, like a seven, equivalent of a okay. seven. So um, I, I'd, I'd say it's in that range for me as well. I think this is in the seven to eight range. I'll, I'll say 7.5. It's a, it's a great movie. It's just, it's ultimately, it's not my type of movie necessarily. I'm not super interested in teenage girls as, um, you know, I'm, I'm becoming less and less interested in teenage based films as I get older, basically, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, if you like a film, you know, mean girls with horror, then you'll probably like tragedy girls. <laughs> so I have one more feature review tonight, and that is the brand new Victor Crowley, which is also getting its Blu-ray release very soon. Uh, that one comes out next week. So um, this our, our podcast is scheduled to come out on Friday. Victor Crowley, I believe, comes out on Monday or Tuesday on Blu-ray. We're about to meet the only guy to ever see Victor Crowley and live to tell about it. They take us and a small camera crew and a host, and they fly us in the private network jet. Okay, I've told you a thousand times, I'm never going back to that swamp. 
So this is a film by Adam Green. It has been reported that it's like a reboot or remake of the Hatchet films. It's not. It is the fourth installment in the Hatchet franchise. I think it's one of the better installments, although I think they are all pretty much on par, in my opinion. I know there are some people have different varying of feelings about part three, you know, it's, it's a little more serious and it's not directed by Adam green. And so some people really dislike that film. Others say, well, that's the best entry in the franchise. I think um, from, in my opinion, I think all the films are kind of on the same, uh, you know, on par with one another. This is an interesting one. Uh, Although it's called Victor Crowley, it doesn't do much to delve deeper into Victor Crowley's um, history or mythology. In fact, I would say it does a little bit less than some of the other films, but it's a good entry into this, this film series. I think for people who enjoyed the other hatchet movies, you're going to like this one. I I will say this has more comedy than the third one. So if you did like that comedy and missed it in, in the third entry, it's back. I think this film has more depth then his other films, although, you know, I was talking to some of our listeners about this who are Hatchet fans. Um, Juan is a big Hatchet fan and Red Cap Jack is a big Hatchet fan. Red Cap Jack talked about how those films actually do have a lot of depth. Adam Green was at a pretty low point in his life when he made this film. He had gone through a divorce, um, you know, had, had some things going poorly with his career as a filmmaker and it was kind of ready to give up. And he had this experience with George Romero. It was right after Wes Craven had died. And he was conducting a panel that George Romero was on. And um, Romero gave him kind of a pep talk and encouraged him not only to stick with it. And look, you have all these passionate fans who are here. I mean, the you know, the the panel discussion was to talk about Romero's work. But as Romero pointed out to Adam Green, look in the audience. There are all these hatchet shirts. There's these Holliston shirts. These people are here to see you as well. You know, you, you have got all these people depending on you, your fan base. And, and and don't give up. You know, stick with it, man. And you know what? They want another hatchet movie. Make them another hatchet movie. I know you think you're done with it. But, but you know, do it for them and you'll get a lot out of that. And so I think that's interesting hearing that kind of secondhand about Romero who we, you know, as we know, had struggled for some time with whether or not he wanted to make another zombie movie, another one of his dead movies. Eventually came back and made three more toward the end of his life. Mm. I thought that was kind of interesting to hear his take on that. But I did want to play a clip of Adam Green from the premiere of Hatchet. He gives this kind of impassioned speech to the audience. And the cool thing about it is he actually hadn't told the audience that it was a hatchet screening, the film was made in secret, right? So he didn't even announce that they were making Victor Crowley. And he had gathered the audience there at the arc light where he originally premiered the first hatchet film and told them it was a screening of hatchet. So everyone there was there to see a revival screening of hatchet. And then he sprung on them that this is actually a new film. So let's go ahead and check out a clip from that. I'm sitting there feeling at my absolute worst about everything and, and so sure that I'm done and I'm not just giving up on movies. I mean, I'm giving up. 
I got this amazing opportunity to do a panel with George Romero. And it was the honor of a lifetime. You know, I mean, as much as I had known George for 10 years at that point, and we were friendly, I'll still always be just absolutely just, you know, sheer reverence of him. I mean, he's not just the godfather of zombies. He's the godfather of independent cinema. If George didn't do it, we probably wouldn't be, for all we know. And uh, he starts speaking to me as if I'm a filmmaker, as if I'm an equal. But without um, sharing too much about the conversation, George said, I know you're going through a really hard time. A lot of people are worried about you. I've heard the things you've said and what you do doesn't matter, that you don't matter. Like, you have to be crazy to not be able to see that. You know, he could see it. I just couldn't. I just couldn't see it. All I saw was failure. And it'd be sad that it took losing people like Wes and George or Dave Brocky to, to be able to really see and love my own creation and not just see what it isn't or, or how it's not good enough or what didn't go right. And that's why, thanks to George Romero, who was supposed to be here tonight, but we missed it by 37 days. We're not here to watch Hatchet. We're here to watch a new Hatchet movie. I wanted to read a couple of our listeners' comments. This made the top 10 list of 2017 uh, for Slashly G and for Red Cap Jack, who had both seen it during the film's tour. Um, Adam Green took this out on tour, like kind of four-walled theaters and roadshow style and took it town to town, which is really cool. I love that approach. Kevin Smith has done that a lot as well. Yeah, he did that with Red State. That's awesome. I think Wes Anderson did that with Rushmore, if I'm not mistaken. It's always fun to, to hear <laughs> filmmakers doing that. Okay, I'm just going to read here from Slashly G. She says, if you enjoyed the first three Hatcher films, you will love this entry. It's faithful to the original trilogy, but stands on its own as a potential kickstart for a new Crowley arc. The gore is more extreme of better quality than would seen in previous films. And the death scenes invoked emotional reactions. There's one scene in the plane that struck my heart. It was brilliantly played. I actually drove four hours on a work night to see this in Philly, then stayed until 2 a.m. to meet Adam Green before driving four hours home for work at 8 a.m. It was worth it. This guy should be considered a modern horror director great. He has such a care and appreciation for the horror genre that it is apparent when hearing him speak. Yeah, I agree. I, I got a chance to speak to Adam Green recently, and um, he's very well-spoken and an, in, and an interesting guy, and you can definitely tell that he loves and cares about horror. Red Cap Jack also had this in his top 10. He simply said, one of the best throwback horror franchises, Crowley is a joyride of splatter and gore and plays the comedy well without sacrificing the horror. And I really found that, you know, I, I am a big fan of Adam Green's Frozen, and I really enjoyed and was interested in digging up the marrow. Right. But I had not really enjoyed my first experience with the Hatchet films when I saw the first one. I didn't end up seeing the sequels. And, you know, I thought I got it. You know, there was some extreme gore and, it, you know, there was some comedy, but it just wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. But to prepare for this interview, I went back and I watched Hatchet 2. I watched Hatchet 3 and then I, and then I watched Victor Crowley. And I had a much greater appreciation for what it was he's trying to accomplish with these movies, uh, you know, uh, upon seeing them all back to back and, and the full breadth of, 
of the franchise. And I think this actually is one of the better modern horror franchises. You know, it's very meta. It spends a lot of time referencing other movies and, 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 and in fact, it references, you know, the other films in the genre. And while that will put a smile on the face of hardcore fans, I did find that to be a bit of a detractor, kind of the, the postmodern self-referential stuff. But other than that, man, I, I really enjoyed what he did here. And I think this film in particular had Victor Crowley um, had a lot of tension that I didn't, he hadn't really done in the previous films. The previous films have a lot of this kind of jump out and kill stuff. This one had some interesting moments. There was a moment with a motion detector light. And I don't, I don't know if this has been done in other films, but I had never seen it before. And the minute I saw it, it's one of those things where you're like, man, this is a brilliant real life thing that works so well in a horror movie. How have I never thought of this before? How have we never seen this before where you've got this motion detector light? We all have them. You know, I've got one in my backyard and you can see just fine. And then you don't move for a second or you get out of the range of the motion detector and the lights go off and pitch black. And he plays with that so well. And it's such a creepy idea for a slasher film when you you're in the swamp and you've got this guy out here trying to kill you. And then the lights just go off and you have to kind of like wave your hand or get like in the, in the lights path. So it'll come back on. It's so effective and so scary. And he builds the tension so well as Slashley alluded to, there's also this super heartbreaking emotional scene um, death that happens in the film. And man, it was super effective and, and just upsetting. And I, I, I thought it was incredible. This, like all of his films, it has a lot of kind of bona fide horror icons of yesteryear. You know, he like Quentin Tarantino, he digs up some of these people who we haven't necessarily seen in a long time and he uses them. Well, Zach Galligan was in part three. I thought that was awesome to see him. I hadn't seen much of him since tremors. I mean, since gremlins, although he's been working, but uh, it was awesome to see him star in a film and he was so good in it. Uh, that film also had Derek Mears, which was cool to see Derek Mears go mono in mono with Kane Hodder. But this film, you know, of course has Kane Hodder's, the title character of Victor Crowley has Dave Sheridan who was in um, scary movie. And he was actually, I remember having rewatched scary movie somewhat recently when we did our scream franchise coverage, he was one of the more enjoyable elements of that film. I didn't, I do not like scary movie, but I really liked Dave Sheridan in that movie and he's excellent in this film. He's so good in it. Um, it has Tiffany Shepis, who is a big horror oh. B movie um, actress that people Tro- love worked with trauma quite a bit. Uh, Tiffany yeah. Shepis, I mean, not just trauma. She's done other stuff too, but yeah, yeah interesting. A beloved actress and red cap Jack. Actually, he mentioned he got to sit in the same row as her and get it. He got his photo with her at uh, the screening of Victor Crowley that he attended in, in California. Nice. So nice, but here was the one that really took me off guard. I didn't realize it was her when we, when I started the film, you know, it took until almost pretty far into the movie before I realized, wait a minute, that's the that's the girl from Sleepaway Camp. It's Felicia Rose is in this movie. Ah, who's nice. the main young lady in Sleepaway Camp. And, you know, she, obviously right. she's later in that series. But I hadn't recognized her. I hadn't really seen her at this age. And she's she was really good. I thought she was doing a great job in the role. And then when I realized it was her, I just – was so happy to see her on screen and had a lot of appreciation for nice. um, Adam Green putting her in the movie. 
there's more other, you know, horror icons and, and people who have been in, in Adam Green's films peppered throughout, you know, it, it's one of those types of movies where, and he's one of those types of directors where he puts all of his friends in the movie and he has the same kind of company of actors. He likes to use over and over again. And I always appreciate that in a film, but um, the basic premise of this film, you know, it, they all deal with this killer, Victor Crowley in the swamp. In this case, uh, one of the survivors from the previous film played by Perry Shen, who's played, many different characters in this franchise. But in this case, he was playing Andrew and he survived part three. He wrote a book about the events of the first three films, because um, for people who've seen the films, they know the first three films happen back to back to back. They're those types of sequels where the second one begins exactly where the first one ended. And then the third one begins exactly where the second one ended. But now between parts three and four, we've got this 10 year gap. And so, uh, Perry Shen's character, Andrew, has written a book about that first night, which was the first three films, um, in the swamp and, and and about this legend of Victor Crowley. And, and some people have even accused him of being the killer because he's the only survivor. So were you the one who killed all these people in the swamp? And he, it's kind of this press story is going on, and he ends up accepting an offer to go with a film crew back to the swamp to uh, you know to shoot kind of a tabloid gossip show about the killings. And so the, he's on this private plane with the film crew and it crashes in the swamp. And that's when the trouble begins once again, but it was a lot of fun. I, especially, as I said, I really enjoyed Dave Sheridan in the film. Uh, Brian Quinn, who's one of Kevin Smith's cohorts. He does uh, the tell him Steve Dave podcast and people know him more now because he's on um, like a prank show on television, on cable. I can't remember what the name of it is, but, uh, he was decent in it. You know, I've, I've known who he is for a long time due to his, uh, podcasting. And uh, I was surprised he, he had a couple of really nice moments in the film as well. But yeah, for me, it was really, it was Dave Sheridan, Perry Shen, Tiffany Shepis, and, um, Felicia Rose, you know, they all were awesome in the movie. So I, I loved, I loved, uh, Victor Crowley. This is not, or hasn't in the past necessarily been my cup of tea, uh, these types of films, but um, my appreciation for this fan franchise has really grown in watching the franchise in full. And, uh, and it's something I feel like I can recommend to people, especially comedy horror fans. I think you're going to love this, uh, you know, hatchet film fans. You're going to love this. If you don't like comedy horror, you you may want to steer clear, but if you if you like the schlock, there's a there are some crazy kills, like ridiculous kills that happen in this movie, and that's something the whole franchise has going for it. They're they are some of the most creative, convincing kills you'll ever see. Just insane makeup effects throughout, and as Slashly mm-hmm. mentioned, they, they they're higher quality in this one as well. I mean, my favorite kills happen even in the first movie in terms of what goes down in those moments. Um, there's a, a very infamous one where a person's face is ripped completely. Yes, I remember. <laughs> it's what I always think of that moment when I hear hatchet, that's exactly the moment I think of. It's so good. I mean, it's the, one of the coolest kills I've ever seen. Um, this has one that's on that level of insanity. I personally, it's not my, it's not my thing, but I, but they are very high quality. So if you're someone who loves gore effects, you love to see the makeup effects, or you just like, a crazy schlocky kill. You'll also 
uh, want to see a Victor Crowley. So I would give this one, I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. I'm going to say uh, it's definitely worth a VOD rental. I actually am going to buy the Blu-ray of this one because there are 95 minutes of special features and Adam Green does such a great job with his special features. I just recently, before I interviewed him, rewatched all of the behind the scenes documentaries from the frozen disc. And they're so well done. They give you such a, a great insight into what the filmmaking process is that I think if you are interested in filmmaking at all, it's really worth owing owning um, Adam green's discs, you know, his blu-rays, he, he mm. does a great job in putting those together. You know, there are certain filmmakers who um, really give the the audience a lot. Rob Zombie is one of those. Eli Roth is one of those. They give you such a clear and extensive insight into their behind the scenes um, that you really learn a lot about their process. And, and Adam Green is definitely one of those guys. So yeah, I recommend people buy the Blu-ray. It's coming out soon. And uh, I can't wait to check out those 95 minutes of bonus material. So that was my review of Victor Crowley. And let's head into our interview with Adam Green. All right, at this point in the show, we are joined by the director of Frozen, Digging Up the Marrow, of course, the Hatchet franchise, and the brand new Victor Crowley, Adam Green. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We're big fans here. Uh, my co-host Jay is maybe the biggest Frozen fan on the planet, and uh, for Christmas this year, I got him uh, one of your signed screenplays. Of Frozen. Oh, nice. Yeah, he was he was excited about that. Um, so Victor Crowley, you know, it's it's been a little while, and you've talked about George Romero kind of being an inspiration, and and the place you were in your life, kind of wanting to revisit these characters. I'm curious when you actually got into it, you you got back making it. Was it what you had hoped it would be? Do you see yourself staying in the Victor Crowley world for a while now? Um, I think that I guess to answer the the second part first, I think one of the biggest reasons why this series has lasted is that I, I go in and out of this world. Like there's like a feeling that happens when it's time to go back to it, but then I always leave and I go do other things. So, uh, I hope to return to it again in a few years, like how I've been doing it, but you never know. Uh, it all depends on how well this one does if we get to make another one. So at this point, it seems like that is going to be the case. But with piracy and streaming and all the other stuff that right. are working against you, it's you never really know. But uh, as far as um, getting back into it again, like you heard on that clip that you played, like this was not what I expected to be doing. Right. And it just ended up being what I needed. And now in hindsight, on the eve of the release, it saved me in a lot of ways. I think I, I worked out so much uh, pain and anger and frustration in this in a very healthy, comedic way. I didn't even realize at the time that I was doing that. Uh, once people started reading the script that I was you know, asking for notes and, and to tear it apart and give me suggestions, that was where I started to realize just how much of my own personal life I was 
putting on the screen right on the page but i wasn't thinking that when i was doing it i was just trying to write the most entertaining movie that i could but in the end uh and even throughout the tour i would start you know normally i don't sit in other than like the premiere and maybe the next screening but after that it's it's you know you're over it by that point you've seen the movie a million times in editing but this one was so fun to watch the audience watch even more so than any of the three hatchet films that came before it hearing people laugh that hard and and scream and cheer and i mean the the all but two nights of the tour it got a full standing ovation at the yeah. end wow which um I don't know if that'll ever happen again. I've never seen that happen with with something before. So um, it was uh, it was great. But I would notice other things about the movie each time. Um, like a, a certain character when she dies, you can hear a, a pin drop in the theater every time. Um, uh, I and know it, exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's a very <clears throat> sad moment, and it's a moment that is the last. It's the last emotion you expect to feel when you go into a hatchet movie. And so that really caught a lot of people off guard. Yeah, and, well, there have, been, there have been other deaths in the film previous to that where I'm sure the audience is screaming and cheering and laughing. So it's it's very interesting to go from one to the other. Yeah, and um, I just started to feel so badly about that moment because – I get, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but I realized uh, the personal stuff that I was working out and why that moment is in the film. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, mm -hmm. I don't think it spoils anything by saying it was the realization that I might never have children. And that's why that wow. is. And wow, wow, that's heavy, man. <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. But that's all, you know, everyone's got their things they want in life and having kids was always priority number one for me. And you know, the people that, <clears throat> sorry, that I'm closest with still are the, the same kids that I grew up with. Uh, those are my closest friends, even though none of them are in the industry or anything. Those are the people that I choose to spend my time with. And they've all gotten married and had kids and some of their kids are getting their learner's permits now and they're going to be driving soon. And it's like, Man, I you know I made such a mistake uh, with the person that I married and ended up getting divorced from. That did that ship sail? Like, did I did I miss it? Like, did I miss the most important thing? And uh, it didn't it didn't even really sink in until maybe mid tour when I was watching the audience just be so devastated by that moment and, and myself feeling it every night yeah. when I realized where that came from. Well, that's incredible. I was going to go somewhere else, but since we're on it, I think this film does have a deeper level of emotion than some of the other films in this franchise. And also, you're playing with tension a lot more than I think we've seen previous to this, which I thought was incredible. I like I like the way that the other films play out, but this had a different vibe um, in some ways. It, it delivers on all the things I think people would expect from a Hatchet movie, but it does have a lot of new elements as well. I can't thank you enough for saying that. Um, you know, I didn't want to make another, like this was a, a very, uh, risky choice to go back to something that I had already done and ended 
and you know my name is not on the third one as a as the director like and now to go back this could have gone a variety of ways and i you know you got you got the fans but anybody once you've been around for a bit you've also got your detractors who are just waiting and hoping that you will stumble and fall mm-hmm. and this was like this was putting myself out there in such a, a major way where if this movie did not work, I, like there are people that would have celebrated that fact. Like, oh man, can't can wait to tear this one apart. And because I'm, I'm laid so bare, um, like personally and emotionally in this, this one more so than probably are just as much as something like Holliston it was a big risk. And, you know, I think that I had something to say this time and I had a different type of hatchet movie to make, which is part of the reason why this is not called hatchet Four, even though it is a direct sequel. I think with two and three, you need to have seen the ones that came before it, especially because they start right where the other one ended. So, um, this one though, you don't have to have seen the first three to enjoy it. And on the tour, there were so many people when I would say, is there anyone in, in here who hasn't seen the other movies? So many people raised their hands and they were there because they were fans of digging up the marrow or frozen or Holliston, the podcast. Yeah. And they enjoyed the film just as much as the fans who have been with it the whole time. But, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the, the tension because the other three movies, there's not really an ounce of suspense or dread it's just fun and then gore every time. And right. this around, uh, along with the, the one really emotional scene, I think the comedy is heightened. But now there's there's a few moments that are genuinely scary in this, which I, I don't think people were expecting. So it's been a it's been a roller coaster ride from the the inception of it to keeping it secret to the big unveiling to the tour, which was incredibly hard and ambitious. Um, it's, uh, and again, if you had asked me four years ago, what I would be doing right now, like it would be anything other than this. I never saw this coming. And that's an important lesson that I've learned in all of this as hard as it's been. And as much of a struggle as it's all been, once you can let go of trying to control where things are going to go in your life and accept that you can make all the plans you want. It means nothing like life is going to do what life is going to do. But if you can be receptive to that and open to it like a sponge basically, um, and absorb those things and put them into your art, then that's something really special. And that's art that's worth making. So, uh, if you, again, if you'd asked me if a hatchet movie would be how I worked out all my own (laughs) pain and struggles, I would have high. But uh, it just all happened at the right time and when I needed it the most. Talking about detractors for just a moment, something we find on our show a lot is that comedy and horror can be a very divisive topic. There are some people who just can't stand it and other people who, who love it. And I just wonder how you approach comedy in your work and how you think about it in terms of how it interacts with the horror and what you're trying to accomplish. Oh my God, we could do a whole podcast just on this. Let's um, do it. You're invited back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my thing, like my two biggest inspirations for Hatchet were American Werewolf in London and Fright Night. 
And I feel like every other filmmaker I've ever met instantly sees that. But there's a lot of more passive uh, fans, if you want to say fans, or audience members, who all they, they see trees, darkness, that Kane Hodder is the killer, and it's a slasher movie. So instantly they're like, oh, Friday the 13th. Hatchet is right. like Friday the 13th. Right. It, like aside from the fact that it's a slasher movie with an unstoppable killer – it is nothing like a Friday 13th movie. Friday 13th movies were never funny. At least they weren't supposed to be funny. And that was like my one hang up with all of the 80s slashers. And, and I love those movies and will defend even the worst one to my grave. But you were just waiting for the villain to show up again and kill these fucking people. Like you did not care about anything that was happening with them. And you really didn't like most of them either. It was just all right, die already. So what I loved about American Werewolf and Fright Night was that they were entertaining movies, which elevated them beyond the whatever subgenre you want to put them in, vampire films or werewolf films. They were entertaining. And that's what I tried to do. So I think if you can make your audience endeared to your characters or your storyline by getting them to smile, because comedy is the easiest way to do that. Trying to come up with a love triangle or this one's frustrations with this or poor whatever, Stacy just broke up with her boyfriend and that, like, no one fucking cares. And that's not why they're coming to these. So I just tried to make the most entertaining and fun movie I could, especially you got to go back to the time when the original came out, the genre was basically torture porn and remakes. And that is not why I, I fell in love with the genre. I don't want to watch women be raped. I don't want to see animals be hurt. I don't want to watch somebody suffer for 90 minutes. Like that's not fun for me. So it all has its place. And I'm sure. And I've done movies that are not funny, like spiral or frozen. Right. Um, or grace, which I produced. Um, but I wanted to remind people why we fell in love with this in the first place and, and have my own voice. So that's, that's why I did it. And I think as long as you keep the comedy away from your villain, once your villain becomes comical, it's over. Like mm. that's it. Yeah. So there's, there's nothing funny about Victor Crowley, but, uh, there, there is a lot of funny stuff about the characters around it so um no, that but as far as the detractors go i always found it hilarious when people would see the first film and be and be angry that it was funny like they hate laughing <laughs> right. and it's just like they're sitting there in their fucking cannibal corpse shirt thing i fucking hate laughing and it's like lighten the fuck up dude like who hates laughing? Do you also hate candy? Do you hate ice cream? Do you like, just like, we get it. You're a badass. You're super tough. Now go f yourself. Like, God. That's funny, man. Um, well, you know, we had a couple of listeners write in cause they had, they had questions for you, but one of them was talking about how this idea that, yeah, although the films have comedy, you, and part of that actually goes toward this. You make people care about these characters, um, and, and although I think Victor Crowley has an extra depth of humanity that maybe we haven't seen in this franchise so far, I think it has been there. I mean, we definitely saw that um, with Daniel Harris's character to some degree, um, in the other films, but our listener here, his name is Red Cap Jack on Twitter. He, uh, he talks about, let's see, he says, 
Adam Green introduces characters that seem cardboard at first, but get fleshed out. They're all human. He has a knack for making people care about these characters either just before they die or just after, sometimes during their death. And we also care about Crowley. He's a victim of this curse, too. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting from Red Cap Jack's comment. I think that is something you're, you've been good at, um, is not detracting from how much we care about these characters, how much their deaths affect us, even when the deaths are outrageous, which they are, and they continue to be outrageous in this film, but you still manage to ground it in humanity, which I think is great. Just uh, yesterday, you know, we've been doing press for a while, and yesterday I was doing interviews with Kane, and I, I asked him, why do you think it is that the audience laughs and, and cheers for every kill that Victor Crowley does, every murder that he commits, but they always cheer the loudest when Victor Crowley gets it in the end. So I'm like, what, why do you think that is? And he had to think about it for a while. And he said, you know, it's probably because no matter what, you know, the villain, the villain's got to get it in the end, but they also know that I'll be back. And so that's why they cheer. But he, but then he said they did not cheer at the end of Hatchet 3. And he said because people were very sad. And he said, and that's, what, that's why I love playing the character. And that's why the character has lasted, is that there is a lot of sympathy behind Victor Crowley's story. And you know, he didn't ask for this. And he lived a very, very hard and sad life. And now he's trapped in this cycle where he comes back every night. But three, which was always supposed to be the climax, like those first three films, they're, they're one movie with a first act, a second act, and a very literally explosive third act. And that moment when he and Mary Beth are standing together over the urn, and it's the only time in the whole series where you see Victor Crowley speak on camera when he's looking at the urn and he realizes that his father is dead and that he's dead and he's not supposed to be here. And meanwhile, Mary Beth is crying, which is not something that was written at first. It's what happened between Kane and Danielle. And it's they're both the parallels between them is that they're both paying for their father's sins. Like Victor Crowley is the way he is because of what his father did. And same thing with Mary Beth. Like her father is the one who made Victor Crowley with what he did as a child. And now she's the one paying for it. So they're both very similar. And that's that's their connection. And from the moment he first sees her in Hatchet One, which was when now when people go back, it's clear as day. But it's the moment where he's got the shovel over Perry Shen's neck. And he looks at Mary Beth and uh, his, the way his eye blinks and she looks at him and there's this instant connection where he recognizes her, even though they've never met yet. Um, yeah, there's something between really fun over the years to see the way the fans who've watched these films over and over again pick up on all of those little things. Because the average person is going to watch these movies for the kills and they're going to have a, a, a fun time with it. And watch it again to show their friends, oh, look at the way he kills this this guy or this girl. Um, but the ones who really get deeper into it and appreciate that stuff, that really it, that really makes me so happy to know that all of the work that I put into it is worth it. Thank you so much, Adam, for talking to us today. Um, just really briefly, 
probably because of the return of Victor Crowley, we had several listeners asking us if there was any chance you'd return to the worlds of some of your other films like Frozen or Digging Up the Marrow. Uh, one person asked, would there could there ever be a film that takes place entirely in the Marrow? Uh, is there any chance we'd see any of that stuff in the future? Well, you know, Frozen, I have no interest in doing a sequel to. It's That's my favorite of all of my films. And I've been asked, uh, Anchor Bay had asked multiple times, will you please do a sequel? And I'm like, what What does that movie look like? Like right. what, she, she goes skiing again? And if you've seen Hatchet 2, then you've seen the epilogue for Frozen. Right. All, of these, all of these films exist in the same world. And even, uh, even Marrow, which if you pay attention to Victor Crowley, there's a nod to William Decker that's very, very blatant during the Sabrina show. Um, but with Digging Up the Marrow, there was a sequel planned um, before we ever made the first one. And it did take place entirely in the Marrow. And um, we'll never get to make it because more people chose to pirate that movie than fucking support it. And that sucks, man. And it does suck. And but the hardest part is, you know, I I really I put myself out there with the the weekly podcast. I write back to everybody on on Facebook, on Twitter. Like I'm very active with my fan base. But I've done so many conventions where people have said to my face, "Oh my God, I just want a sequel to Digging Up the Marrow." And when I ask them, "How did you see the first one?" they they say, "I stole it." They're like, "Well, I tore in everything." And when you try to explain to them that <laughs> right. they're, they're killing the very thing they love, they still won't hear it. They don't care. Like they just go, they shrug and they go, oh, that sucks. And that's the end of it to them. So, um, you know, with, with this new movie coming out this week, um, hopefully that doesn't happen again because yeah. uh, when p- people see where this is about to go um, and hopefully when people watch Victor Crowley, they, they, watch through the credits because there's a very important scene in the end credits. Um, it was the moment that brought almost every single crowd on the tour to their feet. Uh, it's, I, I have a plan and there is much more to come and without spoiling anything, I now was able to change the rules a little bit because of how Victor Crowley is brought back to life where I can get him out of the swamp now. And it's no longer him just roaming the swamp. He knows his father is dead now. He'll always be crying for his father. It's the only word he even knows how to speak. But now he's going after someone else. And now I am so excited for where this is about to go. So if this one gets pirated to shit and we don't get to do it, it is, it's going to be so devastating but it's, you know, Hollywood is a business and uh, these movies cost money to make. And believe me, no matter how successful any of these have been and, and Hatchet, Frozen, I mean, some of these movies have been very, very financially successful. None of it goes to me. So I'm not saying I'll buy the movie because I want your money. I just want to keep making these. Yeah. So, um Whatever it is, whether it's this or a band that you love or a comic book series that you love, if you're going to be a fan, be a fan and support it. And Because um, uh, the fans have more power now than they ever did before. You decide what gets made and what doesn't. 
Um, cause you speak with your wallet. That's why we had so many remakes. It's not because Hollywood ran out of ideas. It's because those were the films that the fans were paying for. Mm. So once the fans finally stopped, they stopped making them. So, um, just, so just always remember that as a fan that, that you do hold the power and, uh, all you got to do is see something the legal way. And nowadays the legal way is still cost next to nothing, which is, you know, adding a whole nother layer of hurdles. Like if everybody watches this, if they all wait for Netflix or stream it, there might not be a sequel. Um, but at least they're seeing it legally, which I greatly appreciate. Um, cause those numbers matter, you know, like if, if Netflix sees that it's getting a ton of views, then they're going to be interested in acquiring the next one if another one gets made. So it all helps. But when you pirate something, you're killing the very thing that you love and you're, you're hurting the artists directly. So uh, hopefully people support it. And hopefully in a few years when, when I'm ready, uh, we, we get to come back to this because um, I think people are going to really, really enjoy what's about to happen in this universe. Cool. Hey, thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and for watching the movie and for talking about it. Without guys like you doing what you do, like I, I have nothing. So, um, thank you. All right. That was our interview with Adam green. It was a pleasure having him on the show and I hope that, uh, people will check out his film, Victor Crowley. It really is a great entry into the Hatcher franchise. So Dave, let's get into our segments for this evening. Up first, we have the classic horror movie minute. All right. Well, for uh, this classic horror movie minute, uh, might be more than a minute, but I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. I was talking, going to talk about the 1945 film, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, this was directed by awesome. Albert Lewin, uh, starring George Sanders, Herd Hatfield, and Donna Reed. The story opens in London. It's 1886. Dorian Gray is this uh, 22-year-old aristocrat, and he's posing for this picture. He's posing for a portrait of himself. This artist, uh, Basil, a friend of his, played by Lowell Gilmore, is painting. Um, And the the last day that he's going to be posing for this, the day it's going to be finished, there's another person sitting in on it. It's Lord Henry Wanton, played by George Sanders. And this guy's a, a bit of a... Yeah, he's very sarcastic. He's he's uh, d- definitely a bit of a charlatan. And he's talking to uh, Dorian Gray saying, hey, you know, you're a really handsome guy. You enjoy it while you can because it doesn't last forever, your youth. And Dorian Gray um, understands that. And all of a sudden, he, he realizes in that moment that he doesn't want to grow old. And he says he'd be willing to sacrifice anything, even his soul, if he could just remain young forever. Well, uh, pretty soon... Dorian realizes that his wish has been granted. You know, several years go by, but he doesn't age. Uh, But the picture of himself, the portrait that was painted by Basil, is aging instead in his place. Uh, Not only that, but he notices that each time he he does something wrong, he has a misdeed, that the portrait grows a little uglier, too. Um, so it's almost as if this is not only absorbing, you know, his, his age, but also the, uh, the sickness, um, that is, uh, sort of infesting his soul, you know, and it just gets worse and worse as it goes to the point that 
you know, even later in the film, he decides, hey, maybe I should correct some of this. And he makes a correction. And then he notices the picture's just not quite so bad anymore. And, and um, uh, you know, it's really about this guy just sort of struggling with, with himself and, and his own misdeeds and, and his own uh, mortality. The performances are really strong. This is uh, George Sanders, I think, at his best. Uh, Hurt Hatfield uh, is is really good as you know the title character. Uh, it also has Angela Lansbury um, making an hmm. early appearance in this as a, a showgirl, uh, and one of the first signs that hey, Dorian might not be the the great guy everybody thought he was. And it does have a few, you know, pretty uh, I'd say you know pretty chilling scenes with regard to this uh, this portrait. Um, and what's interesting is, is that this is a black and white movie, but every now and again, they will show the portrait in color just so you could see how it's mutating. Basil comes over. He wants to take a look at the portrait. He was going to maybe put it on display and, and um, you know, Dorian has it hidden behind a, uh, a curtain because he knows it's different. You know, he knows it's, it's not the same anymore. But I think what is, you know, I, I think what's interesting is just the, the way that it looks at, the, the way that it sort of approaches, you know, this person, he's, he's seeing in this portrait, he's seeing his own soul, he's seeing how it's sick, he's seeing how he's aging, so he's not experiencing it, but he's seeing it, and it gets to the point where he doesn't even really want to look at this picture anymore. It's not a straight up, like, really get under your skin horror movie. But it is one of the better ones to come out of 1940s Hollywood. And, um, you know, it, it's it's a very interesting movie. So, yeah, it's The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1945. It's awesome, Dave. I've definitely seen this one, but it's been a long time. Like, mm -hmm. I, I was probably maybe even a teenager since I have seen it. So when I think of Dorian Gray, I think I have been kind of put off by other versions I've seen. I've, you know, there's like a seventies one. That's the first one I think of. Mm -hmm. I, I think of league of extraordinary gentlemen, I think of penny dreadful. And so it, right. it, it would actually be interesting to return to this original and, uh, and check it out. So uh, you've, you've piqued my interest. I don't, I had no recollection of the black and white to color transitions. So that's something and that it, I'm interested in. Just really, really interesting. And it must've been jarring for the audience in 1945, um, you know, to experience imagine, that. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Thanks, Dave. That was a great edition of classic horror movie minute. And actually, I hope we can do that a lot more often. That's a new segment on the show, as you listeners may have ascertained. Um, when And it won't just be Dave's segment. I think all three of us will take turns right. uh, doing a classic horror movie minute. I'm excited about that. Nice. This is another segment that we share, Dave. It's The Collector's Crypt, and I'm going to take it over this week. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about something on The Collector's Crypt. This is a, a DVD set that I picked up at Target that I just absolutely loved. It's Stranger Things Season 1. And it's so cool it, for a collector. It's a must own. And they, there are two different versions of this. There's a, a DVD Blu-ray combo pack, and then there's a Blu-ray 4k combo pack and they have different artwork. And so depending on your uh, Blu-ray needs and your artwork needs, you, you may choose one or the other. I ended up getting both because I gave one to our friend William for Christmas as well. 
I personally, I don't right. have a 4K Blu-ray player yet, but I did let, prefer the art. So I got that one for myself. <laughs> but here's the cool thing about it. It looks like a VHS case when you look at it. It looks, it's got all the aging and the stickers and all that stuff on it. But then even cooler is you slip it out of that sleeve and the case inside that looks like a VHS tape legitimately That's like awesome. front and back, top and bottom. Then it's got this magnet latch on it. So you open up the magnet and inside of that, you've got your, your discs and it's just a really awesome packaging that for is, a really awesome that show. Is, that is so cool. I still have a lot of my eighties tapes down in the basement. So that's really cool. That's so cool. Yeah. I got rid of a bunch of mine and I really regret it. I kept what I was doing as I was replacing kind of like I'm doing with my Blu-rays now, mm-hmm. you know, with my DVDs when I would get, uh, a DVD that I already had the VHS tape of, I'd get rid of the VHS tape. Nice. And, and so the only VHS that I have left are those that I never got the DVD for. And I have a few of the movies that we purchased, but a lot of this is stuff I've recorded off of not just cable, but also regular television. So you got the eighties, eighties commercials in there and all that stuff. So I just, I I have a hard time giving, giving those up, you know? And it's fun. You've got like four movies on a, on a tape and <laughs> right exactly i was able to fit forget three movies i think the very first tape i ever made was uh was death trap poltergeist and superman 2 so <laughs> yeah when when you start putting too many movies on then the tape doesn't play as well no so you gotta, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't that's very it's too true. heavy on one side very true anyway if you're a stranger things fan this is a must own dave you talked about your son is is crazy about stranger things that you're you're eventually going to get to yes it. definitely I'm telling you, go to Target and pick up one of these. It's totally worth it. And the, and the other reason I recommend people buy this is because we want to support Netflix releasing their original content on Blu-ray and home video because it's really frustrating. There are all these great films that Netflix is picking up, and that's great. It's a great platform. But then none of these films get released on DVD or Blu-ray, and it, and I, it's just sad. You know, I'm sorry. My phone is blowing up. I don't know why. <laughs> but call it, it's Matt and Jason. You know, and especially Mike Flanagan's films. You know, I really would love to own a Blu-ray of Hush and Gerald's Game. Right. And we just found out that, that he's going to be doing the sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep. Nice. And so, you know, I, I really want to own some of these Netflix, the Netflix show, uh, The OA and Bloodline. I'm a big fan of this stuff. So I think if we support. Stranger Things, which I guess was the easiest one for them to justify putting out on physical media. I hope people will buy it and uh, convince Netflix to do it more. All right. So that's it for the collector's crypt. That's it for this week at Horror Movie Podcast. We want to thank Adam Green for joining us. We want to thank Kagan Breitenbach for joining us. And we want to thank all of you for joining us. Jason will be back on our next show. It will be another Frankensteinian episode. Then we will have our Horror Cinema Awards the week after that. And then we'll be back into another of our deep dive themed episodes where we take a horror theme or subgenre and do a pseudo intellectual investigative study of the film and the genre. So I'm looking forward to whatever our next themed episode is as well. Dave, tell the good people where they can find you online. All right. You can find me at DVDinfatuation.com. 
Um, I have not been continuing the challenge only because I have been diving deep into the 2017 movies. I have a lot lined up that I want to watch. However, uh, the plan is still to finish in February. So I know that I had talked with several people about possibly sending some reviews in that I would post other people's reviews once I hit the 2500. Um, if you would like to start doing that um, to those people that I had discussed this with, uh, you can email those reviews to uh, dvdinfatuation at gmail.com. Um, and I will. If you're a new listener, Dave, can they? Oh, yeah, uh, I can touch absolutely. With you possibly. Absolutely. If you want to send me an email there to, if, you, if you're interested in contributing. But um, anybody who's interested, what I'm doing is I'm sort of opening up to the listeners of HMP. Um, you know, not everybody, but um, and I've talked with a few. I know Juan is, is interested. Um, and there have been a few other people who have expressed interest and I've already talked with them about it. But if you're interested in contributing and, and having um, a review posted on um, you know, DVD Infatuation, um, just send me an email and um, you know we can, can uh, correspond. But if, if we've already decided, we've already talked about it, forward me a review. Um, you know, I'm starting to collect those up and I will post them once after I hit 2,500 and it should be, um, it's going to definitely be before Oscar, the Oscars. Uh, as a matter of fact, it should be a couple weeks before the uh, Oscar ceremony that I get to 2,500. So um, send them along, and um, you know we'll we'll cool. start that uh, you know right around that time. I'm still going to be posting reviews as we go. I will ask. The only thing is that you know take a look. I mean, I'm not even uh, limiting it. If you if you uh, write a review of a movie I've already reviewed. I have an alphabetical list and I can just put your name that, okay, this is a review, you know, this is your take on the film. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to limit anyone. I've limited myself to Blu-ray and DVD. I'm not limiting anyone else. If you want to do a new release, um, you know, something you've seen on streaming uh, that's not available on Blu-ray and DVD, that's absolutely fine too. Um, that was just my limitation for the challenge. Um, so yeah, send those things along. Um, again, it's dvdinfatuation at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at, at dvdinfatuation. Uh, I have a Facebook page. Uh, I have been updating my Letterboxd account uh, with a list of movies that I've been watching of 2017. I think I'm almost at 50 now. And I think I have at least that many more to go, if not more, that I'll be doing throughout the month of February. And also an Instagram account, and of course other podcasts, the Universal Monsters Cast, and the We Deal in Lead uh, podcast, and um, others coming down the road. That's exciting. Yep. Yeah, I would just add, echo what Dave said. Please check us out at UniversalMonstersCast.com. We are going to be getting going on that again very soon. We I'm also uh, finally getting back around to movie streamcast that poor show has definitely bared the brunt of um you know my busy schedule it's not uh it's not gotten the attention that it needs we are changing things up a little bit at movie streamcast i've had a rotating group of hosts ever since rachel had to go part-time i am going to have a new full-time co-host over there and that co-host is going to help me keep things moving uh, so that i don't have to take full responsibility of it and that will be very nice and uh, we will still have our additional co-hosts and we're happy to have them. We are also discontinuing our survivor coverage, believe it or not, at movie streamcast. The reason why is 
Cody and I are talking about doing a new separate Survivor thing, which is going to be pretty cool. It sounds like we're going to be able to have exit interviews and talk to the players. And and so we're just making that its own thing. Uh, stay tuned for that. We, we may have Survivor coverage for one more season before uh, we start out our new Survivor endeavor. But Movie Streamcast, yeah, we cover all the movies that are streaming online at MovieStreamcast.com. You can find me on social media at Icarus Arts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. So get in touch with us here at HorrorMoviePodcast.com as well. And we're on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast and Instagram at HorrorMovieCast. What else? You can always contact us by emailing HorrorMoviePodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. Or just leave a comment below the show notes of this episode. We've got a great community that usually has some good conversations going. We'd love to hear from you. Horror Movie Podcast is a free show, but if you'd like to help us out monetarily, we'd appreciate it. You can do that by becoming a patron at patreon.com for the low, low price of $2.50 a month, for which you'll also get a lot of bonus content each month. You can also get a cool HMP t-shirt at teespring.com slash stores slash horror movie cast and if you have no money but you want to help us out please subscribe and leave us a review five star reviews are the best at itunes it really helps our visibility thank you for listening and join us again friday after next for another episode of horror movie podcast where we are dead serious about horror movies without guys like you doing what you do, I have nothing. Ugh.